Hello out there, and welcome to the Crime is Up podcast, where we showcase the best in hard-boiled criminal tales. I'm Christopher Afonco Bradley, here with Will Benson. Hello, boys and girls. How are you all doing today? Uh, I'm just gonna go dig off my sweater, hang it up here carefully and respectfully, and now I'm going to gently unlace my shoes. Uh, let's get these fellows off my feet and put them in their home right here by the door. And now let me uh, get my friendly slippers on. Uh, and hey, I'm gonna talk to some cute puppets later. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sorry. Uh, it's just that there's a lot of negativity nowadays, and unfortunately I'm going to be a bit negative myself through this podcast, so I thought a little nice and sweet positivity at the start might help. Also, you might have heard um, a saw going uh, downstairs. There is either a contractor or possibly Tom Waits uh, just <laughs> running saws and banging pipes together. Uh, but I have, it's got a yeah. swordfish trombone. Yeah, down something there. like that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I am in a new recording situation now. I'm still trying to work it out. And so uh, hopefully I'll be legible. And uh, yeah, just bear, bear with uh, any audio changes that you might notice, please. Anyway, uh, let me put on my home sweater as opposed to my outside sweater. And, uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Take it. Yeah. So today, we're taking things back into the past. And we're talking about Out of the Past, starring Robert Mitchum, Jane Greer, and Kirk Douglas. Uh, we've done a few episodes in a row of neo-noir and a, a few comedic takes on the noir genre, so we wanted to take a look back at one that fits snugly in that classic film noir period, back before they even had a name for it. And we both love Mitchum, uh, Will particularly so. Yes, I have indeed married both Robert Mitchum's gravestone, legally, uh, and his skeleton. <laughs> the ceremony was conducted by the ghost of Christopher Lee, so just try and refute that. Bitches. Bitches, back off. <laughs> I, will, I will fight all comers. <laughs> just be aware that I permanently have scissors grafted onto my knuckles. Yeah, this is one of those one of those silly college decisions, you know. Yeah, uh, same reason I have Treat Williams tramp stamped on my lower back, and Willem Dafoe inked <laughs> on my chest, and John Renault on my secretariat like muscled thigh. Uh, yeah, I also might have lost my mind recently, um, as our listeners yeah. will discover as I continue to talk on this podcast. I have some, I have some opinions. Uh, treat? Yeah. <laughs> treat Williams. Yeah, he's a treat. Oh. <laughs> All right. Just a brief spoiler warning before we get into it. If you haven't seen Out of the Past, we are going to be talking about the whole shebang, and there will be spoilers. If you're listening in January of 2021, when this episode is first coming out, TCM in the old US of A has Out of the Past scheduled to run on Saturday, January 23rd. So you can catch it there, or it's available on DVD, Blu-ray, and for rent online. If you haven't seen this movie, I recommend that you do. It's one of the cornerstones that the genre of film noir is built upon. It's a classic, uh, despite what Will's going to say later. But 
Honestly, the plot is so serpentine and convoluted that it probably won't hurt you any to listen to our episode right now and then watch the movie for the first time. It had been four or five years since I'd seen this, and I found that when we rewatched it, I had forgotten an awful lot about the intricacies of the plot and who's double-crossing whom and which MacGuffin they're talking about. Because for this movie, the journey is more important than the destination. And I just have such fun watching Mitchum smoke cigarettes and stand around in the shadows sporting a fedora and a trench coat that it doesn't matter. But as I understand it, my partner in crime doesn't agree. Well, here's the thing. Uh, I always want to like art, be it a film, a book, a painting, or a play. Uh, barf. Uh, or, or, you know, what have you. Any, any, any sort of art, I want to like it. Uh, but, but Out of the Past is widely considered a masterpiece, an early standard of the noir genre, before noir existed. And I don't disagree with that. It's an expertly shot and engaging flick on the surface of it, and it's easy to see how influential it was. It indeed was influential enough to spawn a remake in 1984 with Jeff Bridges and James Woods, and I'll make a ridiculous statement about that later. Uh, because yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is this is controversial. Uh, this movie doesn't work for me. I think the plot uh. stinks. I think the plot stinks and fails to make me give a damn about what happens to anyone or what they are doing and why. There's important papers, double crosses, triple crosses, a love triangle or a love square, sort of. And I can't even <laughs> bring myself to try and remember it. An argument could be made, it's just old-fashioned, but I disagree. I think it's actually just boring. So, alright. I'm just gonna keep digging my own grave here. Uh, I, saw, I saw Bad Boys recently. Uh, otherwise known as the birth of Michael Bay, once he was unleashed upon the earth as Kali, the goddess of destruction and rebirth. And that, that I'm sorry if that's offensive to our, our, our Hindi listeners, or Hindu listeners. Uh, I'm actually not sure what the pluralization is. But uh, I apologize. Uh, but Bad Boys made me reflect in a new way on Out of the Past. Uh, a movie that looks... <laughs> Oh, that was a dog barking. There's <laughs> Tom Waits hammering downstairs. All right, no, I'm just going to keep Waits. going. He's got a dogfish drunk. <laughs> oh, he's playing a dog. All right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. So, so uh, I, I continue to apologize for this opinion. But uh, watching Bad Boys after Out of the Past made me reflect in a new way on Out of the Past. You know, a movie that looks beautiful, has a lot of energy, sex, and characters maneuvering like bad boys and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that but i think both flicks have exactly the same amount of depth when it gets to the grit of it i think we can both agree that michael bay is just ripping off tony scott who invented like this heat saturated spasmodic engaging style but tony scott's flicks invariably had a heart to them even you know the lesser ones Nobody will ever accuse Michael Bay of having a heart. And, uh, <laughs> I, and I say Out of the Past doesn't have a heart either. At least not one that I can find. I mean, we can be engaged by the dialogue, 
entranced by the, the brilliant cinematography and revel in Mitchum and Douglas and, and Greer. But nothing here lasts for me as soon as the story ends. You picked a lonely hill to die on, Will. <laughs> uh, uh, yep, <laughs> I, I, I definitely did. Oh, I, I mean, you just likened Out of the Past to Bad Boys. That is a bold comparison. And, and I can agree on the face of it that both of their primary goals are to entertain. But to say that Out of the Past has the same depth is not something I can jump on board with. And I love Bad Boys. And Bad Boys too. I haven't seen three yet, uh, but I do hope that Will Smith and Martin Lawrence round out the trilogy well. It is amazing. Ah, good, good. I look forward to it. You'll love it. (laughs) But I just have to flat out disagree here. And I think this is going to be the first time we really disagree on a movie. So this should be fun. (laughs) But before we get into that, let's talk about the origins. Out of the Past was based on the novel called Build My Gallows High which was written by Daniel Mannering under the name Jeffrey Holmes. And he was the only credited screenwriter on this movie, under the Holmes pseudonym, which I thought was strange to see in the credits. It isn't often that an author gets to adapt their own work uh, into a script, especially back in old Hollywood. On IMDb, it listed two other writers as being uncredited. One I had never heard of, Frank Fenton, and the other was none other than James M. Cain. And so I immediately went to see if we could find the draft of the screenplay by Kane to compare it to the original. And it is available uh, on eBay. There's a copy for $15,000. So I won't be reading that. But thankfully, somebody else has. Will, you did some digging on this. You don't want to you don't want to go halvesies on that screenplay copy. (laughs) It's very official looking. It has the RKO, like, must return to RKO files. It's got, or like, else. coffee stains on it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, $15,000. Yeah. So uh, yeah. the screenplay for Out of the Past uh, has a bit of an interesting story. Uh, I, I read this in a Film Comment magazine article by Jeff Schwager from 1991. He seems to have done thorough research, reading all versions of the script from the RKO archives. Mannering is credited in the titles, but the author James M. Kane did two drafts of a rewrite. And, you know, James M. Kane, you might know as a writer of, oh, I don't know, The Postman Always Rings Twice? Oh, uh, what's over here? Double Indemnity? Oh, look, Mildred Pierce. Hi, Mildred. Yeah, so he's, <laughs> yeah, he's no slouch. This guy's no slouch. Uh, and then there was a, a, a final rewrite by that guy named Frank Fenton, who was a working writer and punch-up artist. He's the one who came up with lines like, Joe couldn't find a prayer in the Bible, among many, if not m- most of the other great lines that are in this movie. He's also the one that simplified the story and cut down the noise, you know, streamlined things. Yeah, when I saw James M. Kane on there, I thought it must have been him that was responsible for that great hard-boiled dialogue. But Schwager explains in this article that it was Fenton. All the best lines are from Fenton. You know, she can't be all bad. No one is. Well, she comes the closest. And then there was the, is there any other way to win? There's a way to lose more slowly. Like, ah, so good. I love the dialogue here. And I love that Mr. Schwager has gone through and done the research and given us Someone to praise for that lovely dialogue. Frank Fenton 
should get the lion's share of the credit here. Yeah, and I think his work is why this movie is so remembered and held up, which really tickles me that this punch-up artist, who I think is a good writer in his own, uh, ahem, right? Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, English is dumb. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he made such an impact uh, on this film. And, you know, for film noir going forward. So, uh, shout out to all our unheralded punch-up writers. Will and I both read the book Build My Gallows High, and uh, even if you're a super fan of this movie, you can skip reading the book. The bones of the story and the plot are the same, but the things that make this movie so enjoyable aren't in the book. The dialogue, uh, Mitchum's spirited indifference in his delivery, the shadows in cinematographer Nicholas Musaraka's photography. The movie here is better than the book. And the book isn't even easy to come by. It was originally an ace double, and the lowest price I could find online was $75. Maybe the second book in the double makes it rare. It's called The Hummingbird Box by Harry Whittington, and he has a big fan base uh, for readers of the pulps and paperback books, and a lot of it hasn't been reprinted, so maybe that's why there's such a high price tag, but 75 bucks for a paperback is hard to stomach, you know, even for a double. For those listeners who may not be familiar, there were some publishers of paperback books that would double up and print two books in one. So you read one book from the front cover to the middle of the binding, and that book would end, and you'd flip over the book and have another cover and another book to read. But thankfully, we didn't have to spend $75 on this book, because that would be insane. (laughs) Uh, Will found it online at uh, Scripted. I did indeed. And we don't usually do a free advertising, but Scripted is absolutely worth checking out. That is a S-C-R-I-B-D. And um, thank you, Scripted, for inevitably sending us money. Uh, also, <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I mean, we already spent $15,000 on this script. Why not spring that $75 for <laughs> this double book? I mean, what difference does it make to us? You know, I I I wish I did have fifteen thousand dollars to waste on this because apparently it opens with a shark attack. Um, yeah, uh, James M. Yeah. Kane had Bailey meeting uh, the the Kathy Moffat character by saving her from a shark, and I well, just want course. to imagine Robert Mitchum beating a shark with his bare fists. I know. <laughs> I just fun. I would just there's part of me that just wants. Uh, well, I mean, I want I want my husband to be in every movie, really. Yeah. But I would love to see him in Jaws. And just yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, he'd make a great. Like when, yeah. yeah, when he's getting eaten by Bruce, he just lights one last cigarette. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's getting swallowed down that gullet. So. Uh. All right, yeah, but uh, uh, back back to the book, uh, which we did both read. Um, and yeah, the the book is. Uh, Odd, I would say. Uh, oddly structured, anyway. Because there's a gigantic cast of characters, especially the villains. There's five or six villains, or antagonists, anyway, that get condensed into the two in the movie by Frank Fenton. Uh, wisely, I believe. It seems like we spend much more time with this cast of rogues and peripheral characters than with our main guy, the Mitchum character in the book named Red because of his hair, which is not exactly original, uh, but it's more memorable than Jeff Bailey. Is he, like, (laughs) 
George <laughs> George Bailey's ne'er do well cousin. I mean, like, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, but uh, the disparate POV storytelling is, I mean, that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with an ensemble. Except that here it doesn't seem exactly thought out. It, it, hopefully you can't hear the uh, saw that Tom Waits is running right <laughs> below me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, but in my opinion, the book is a little purposeless. Meandering through this uninteresting plot, never really grabbing on to anything. And it spends so much time with Anne and the kid, and actually their stories swarming around Red could mean something, if Red meant anything to the reader. Uh, but he, he doesn't, I, I think. He's a cipher. Everyone around him shows so much more emotion than he does, and that's not unlike the movie. But, like, to what end? There's no point being made here, I don't think. Why do Anne and the kid twist themselves into pretzels for this guy? We don't really get any kind of explanation or even a hint. I, I mean, I can see that this mystery man with a past would be intriguing, but his past isn't all that intriguing. An affair with a gangster's treacherous mall. That's his backstory. And now he likes fishing mm. and girls half his age. And, you know, I like one of those <laughs> things very much myself. And I'm not... I, I won't say which one. You know, but, uh, <laughs> I like fishing. No, I do, too, very much. Uh, we actually both met when we catfished each other. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true, but it's a fun joke. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, yeah, <laughs> and aside, uh, the etymology of mall is interesting to explore, and that's mall, M-O-L-L. Essentially, most recently, it means a gangster's wife, not wife, you know, a side piece, uh, but it traces back a long way. Basically, all iterations meaning a woman of criminal mind and or loose sexual morals. You know, whatever that meant for the time. It has a predatory or parasitic subtext. It's both a sexist term and, I would like to think, a liberating one in its way. I take it as meaning a woman who doesn't comply with the regimental rules of society and carves her own way as she can. And I, I would like mall to become a term of pride for a women that aren't tied to some dude and also don't comply with rules. Like that RBG was a real mall. Well, although actually <laughs> her whole life was about following rules, actually. But <laughs> she was a Supreme Court justice. Interpreting the rules, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, like, uh, you know, that Sojourner Truth was a real mall. You know? <laughs> Where does I mean, your brain go? <laughs> it goes right here. Back on task, uh, this book is an easy, quick read. And, you know, it can get a little heavy on superlatives, but I can't really accuse anyone of being heavy on superlatives. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I'm writing, I enjoy me some <clears throat> uh, circuitously serpentine superlatives slithering across a page like a snake on a branch in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> yeah, sorry. That just yeah, <laughs> just just slipped out of me there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the plot here is really just the same. 
intact from page to screen, including the fly fishing assassination. Although, uh, you can disagree with me if you want, but I actually buy that more in the book than in the movie. Uh, like, it actually kind of makes sense in the book. In the movie, it's really just sort of like a, did that just happen kind of moment? <laughs> but um, but I actually buy a lot more in the book than in the movie, even though I, I'm not expecting to revisit the book anytime soon. Because to me, it's almost like you can feel the author, Daniel... You have to say it again for me. Mannering. Mannering. <laughs> Daniel Mannering trying like really hard to write tough. But I think he's better when it has nothing to do with plot or hard-boiled characters interacting, but when it's people treating each other like people. And like overall, I like this book fine, but I can't say that it makes an impact. The last line did make me laugh out loud, though. In, in a good way, I think. It was pretty audacious <laughs> i'd be interested to find some of his other books actually and i'm gonna i'm gonna see if i can because based on this one he doesn't really play by the usual rules for better or worse and he's also credited as the adapter of the first uh, invasion of the body snatchers from 1956 directed by don siegel uh, adapted from a, a magazine serial and between that and this flick uh, he wrote the big steel also directed by Siegel and yeah, starring once yeah. more Mitchum and Greer. I, I mean, I'm of the opinion that anything Don Siegel directs is worth checking out. Because uh, yeah. I think he's, yeah, I think he's a director that really bridged the 50s to the 70s. Uh, Dirty Harry still being his most famous, probably. Yeah, and uh, last word on Frank Fenton. Uh, he wrote a novel, A Place in the Sun, which is actually highly regarded. Uh, Seems like an interesting read, and is pretty tantalizingly impossible to find. Maybe I'll do my own uh, detective quest to track down a copy. All I need is some cigarettes. <laughs> oh, hey, look, a cigarette. <laughs> God, there's so many cigarettes in this movie. <laughs> uh, but, all right, there, there are a few literary moments in the book that I enjoy. And one of the things I think the book does do well is explain just how hard the Mitchum character falls for Mumsy. And yes, the, the Kathy Moffat character that Jane Greer plays in the movie is impossibly named Mumsy McGonagall in the book. What, you don't know the McGonagalls? <laughs> the, the famed McGonagalls? You know, Mumsy of the McGonagalls. <laughs> some things are just lost to time and that name's one of them. Just <laughs> incredible. There's a great passage in the book after Mumsy has her hooks in Red Bailey. She has some dialogue about her black soul, and it's kind of a, a hokey, hard-boiled discussion. But then there's a kernel of truth that I thought went a long way to explaining how Red falls for Mumsy. Daniel Mannering writes, quote, An unpleasant job confronted him, leaving Mumsy, heading east, and trying to make Wit Sterling swallow a tail. Not that he worried much about it. He was too busy finding a soul for Mumsy to worry about anything. End quote. And that line has a lot of honesty to it. I think most people have at one time or another chased after the affections of someone who was not good for them. I know I have. <laughs> chased a woman all the way to Texas once. Uh, so that line rings true. 
and it hurts. It's a reminder. And at that point, when I read that in the book, I was really with it, waiting for this book to unleash its wave of human understanding. But it never really does. It spends entirely too much time on ancillary characters like Anne, the girl from the small town that Bailey wants to return to, and the guy who loves her, Caldwell. There are chapters devoted to these two that you just breeze through because they're a bore. And at the two-thirds mark, the book basically begins a manhunt tale where the cops and the crooks are trying to find Bailey and the mute kid is delivering messages to Bailey, who's camping out in the mountains. And there's all this intrigue over where Bailey is, but it isn't interesting. At one point, he's trying to contact Wit, and the bad guys say Wit is out fishing and can't be found to negotiate about the tax papers. And Bailey says to the kid, quote, they're stalling, end quote. And honestly, that's what it feels like reading the last 50 pages of this book. It's only 150 pages long, but it basically runs out of steam by 100. And it feels like Mannering just pumped the last third of it out in a day with a bunch of uppers and a pot of coffee to hit a page count. The ending is so convoluted with who shot whom and why that I feel like he just mad-libbed his own book ending. Mumsy shoots Joe because she wants to run away with Guy, but Joe shot Wit because he wanted to run away with Mumsy, and Mumsy shoots Bailey because... Purple Monkey Dishwasher. Uh, you could just fill in anything. Yeah, I was certainly not listening to anything you just said. But that that is not your fault. It's not your fault, oh, buddy. Thanks. You have a mellifluous <laughs> voice, and I fall asleep to that recording you gave me for Christmas of you reading Good Night Moon every single night. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the book's plot is, uh, how should I put this, bad? It barely yeah. keeps one interested, yeah. <laughs> despite being so short, as you said. And in my opinion, this problem carries over to the film. Well, I think the movie vastly improves on it, owing in no small part to its star, Robert Mitchum. We spoke a good bit about Mitchum in episode 8 when we had our big Cape Fear comparison episode, but I've learned a lot more about the man since then. And that is due in large part to reading Lee Server's biography on Mitchum titled Robert Mitchum, Baby, I Don't Care. If you're a fan of the barrel-chested, chin-clefted, sleepy-eyed star, then this is the book to read. Server has put together what feels like an anecdotal chat with a ton of people who actually knew Mitchum. You will not believe the candor with which people speak about the man. The amount of dirt and the incredible Hollywood shenanigans that Mitchum was involved in are the stuff of legend. And those legends are all written down in this book, so give it a read. Uh, also, you get to know the man best as you can. Uh, he was a lot of things and full of contradictions. He was a published poet by the age of 10 and expelled from middle school before the age of 13 for shitting in his teacher's hat. <laughs> he had what seemed to be a photographic memory, but he would pretend not to know his lines, uh, Jane Greer said about Out of the Past. He would come on set asking if anyone knew the lyrics. <laughs> he would pretend to learn them on the spot when, of course, he already knew them and was probably more prepared than anybody else. Yes, there's a reason that I married this dead man. Uh, you know how you have that <laughs> friend who is a huge pain in the butt? but is also someone you just love that you know them. The kind of friend where suddenly you're asking yourself, how did I get to Vegas? And is this, in fact, Christmas? 
And why am I clutching <laughs> brass knuckles in one hand and a harmonica in the other? Like, that's who Robert Mitchum is. <laughs> and he, you know, just telling you, like, don't worry about it, you know? <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, I'll stop worrying. <laughs> and how one day you're skipping rocks across a placid pond, the next, well, you're combo shitting into a teacher's hat back to back with your best buddy, Robert Mitchum. <laughs> He was too cool for school, literally, and that devil-may-care nonchalance was something he cultivated in his personal life, and it bleeds into the fatalistic tales of film noir so well. That's why he is in so many ways the prototypical protagonist for film noir, the detective who's seen it all and doesn't care. Or maybe underneath, maybe deep down he does, because Mitchum knew his lines, and a drinker or not, most people interviewed in the book that Server talks to uh, says that Mitchum was a pro, able to stay out until 5 a.m. drinking and cavorting and then show up for a 7 a.m. call and be ready to work. So he must have cared about something. His attitude on set at About Acting was exemplified in this one bit that I loved in the Server book. Uh, he was making a movie called Home from the Hill. And he was working with an actor named George Pepard, who had studied at Strasbourg's actor's studio. Pepard asked Mitchum if he had studied the Stanislavski method of acting. And Mitchum's reply was said to be, quote, No, but I've studied the Smirnov method. End quote. <laughs> yeah, Stanislavski is, of course, a brand name of a blimp or zeppelin. And um, <laughs> no, it's not. Smirnoff, of course, <laughs> is the Russian word for water. Yeah, I can stand by that. Uh, so, Mitchum is famous for his easygoing screen presence. I mean, he's a movie star, and movie stars inevitably become known for different iconic traits. I mean, Marilyn Monroe's being Marilyn Monroe, uh, for instance. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Julia Roberts' smile. Jimmy Stewart's earnestness, John Wayne's uh, stroke face, and uh, Clint Eastwood's <laughs> eyes, Betty Davis's eyes, just moving along, uh, Denzel Washington's subdued fury, Tom Hanks is now always a guy that, uh, you know, Tom Hanks has a job to do, and gosh darn it, he's gonna ding-dang do it. Just gonna put this plane down in the river, you know? I mean, and Tom Cruise is a living cartoon, who will probably die on Mars. Yeah. Like, literally die on Mars, <laughs> because that's where the Mission Impossible movies are going to go. So, and I, I, I'm going off a bit here, uh, but that's because I'm kind of trying to avoid what I'm about to say. Because I, I wonder if Mitchum was the right choice here as the main character. Uh, <gasps> yeah. Heretic! Yeah, 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 yeah. But we were just we were just talking about Sean Connery in our last episode, and both these guys are known for playing it cool, blasé, laconic. But Connery has a fire that he could put into his eyes. I mean, Connery's eye literally fades into a torch in a first night, uh, which wasn't even a camera effect. He just yeah. acted it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And First Night, of course, was directed by Jerry Zucker of the Brothers Zucker, who also directed Ghost, which I didn't actually know, uh, was producer of the Naked Gun movies, Police Squad TV show, and Airplane. And this has nothing to do with anything, it's just fun. 
Yeah, but Mitchum here in this movie is so relaxed, I really don't know if he gives a damn. Like, is he a bit too mercurial? I feel compelled to figure out why this movie doesn't work for me. And we are trying to trying to work it out right now. I mean, I love Mitchum. He's my skeleton husband forever. Uh, my, my tombstone husband is Kurt Russell. And he's holding a microwave pizza. Uh, that's <laughs> such an old 90s commercial <laughs> reference oh god what a re- yeah that's <laughs> i'm really pushing it i'm really pushing it i think i'm just trying I to distract <laughs> i'm just trying to distract from my opinion because uh, here <laughs> mitchum is just so relaxed and uh, i mean mitchum himself doesn't remember this movie or if he ever saw it himself and I got that uh, from a Roger Ebert article, who perhaps loved Mitchum as much as I did. Uh, but Mitchum's like a golden retriever or a Labrador. He's literally just interested in what he's doing day to day and being comfortable. Uh, like His coolness was not an act. He actually was that chill. I mean, who's to say how much marijuana had to do with that? Uh, not me, because marijuana actually makes me angry. But, you know, I got... I got weird chemistry, as everybody can tell at this point, I'm sure. (laughs) So here is part of my problem. Mitchum, in many of his films, his coolness is covering up hidden depths. And hidden depths, I was thinking, uh, there's another prog rock album by our band Respective Knuckles that we found in episode 8 when we were talking Cape Fear with Mitchum. Uh, but, but here in this story, I'm just not getting what I want from this character. Originally, this character was supposed to be Humphrey Bogart. Like, Bogart wanted to do it. Uh, but WB wouldn't loan him out, because that's, of course, how it used to be. You know, the actors were property of studios, you know, pre-SAG, pre-union. It was only someone like Catherine Hepburn, who was independently wealthy, you know, they could say, fuck this. And also, a lot of hard work from a lot of people to push back at the studio property system. Ah, unions. Smoothest transition ever. <laughs> yeah. No problems there anymore. So uh, yeah, Nobody ever got hurt. Everything was great. Uh, uh, oh, wait, pardon me. There's a large number of suit-covered street urchins chanting outside my door. Something about farthings and black lung. <laughs> but, well, anyway, yeah, anyway, don't worry. The Pinkertons I hire will roust them away. But, um, but, but seriously. Yes. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Good old Pinkertons. Pinkertons? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but no, but, uh, but Bogart here in this movie, I think, would be terrific. Like, he knows how to do that thing with his eyes, like Connery could, where he still looks cool and divorced from caring too much, but you can tell that he is, in fact, caring too much. And it's usually about a dame, or sometimes gold, you know, in one way or another. It it helps when, you know, Bogart's looking at Lauren Bacall. I mean, it, mm. that helps everybody. But, like, you, you know how Eastwood is best when he's looking at nothing in particular, you know? Like, just middle distance. And, like, Lon Chaney Jr. is best when he's looking horrified at what is happening around him. But, like, Bogart got that when he looked at dames. It's just when he kisses them that it gets weird. Like, you see this pleasant, attractive 17-year-old Lauren Bacall just macking on a baseball <laughs> mitt made of raisins. 
but you know, <laughs> you should probably start uh, talking now. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Uh, but the thing, <laughs> the thing I have, <laughs> uh, Dick Powell was also considered for the part of Jeff Bailey with Ed Dimitrick directing. Uh, fun fact: Bogart, Dick Powell, and Robert Mitchum would all come to play the same Private Eye character, uh, my personal favorite, Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe in different films. And Out of the Past was really Mitchum's first big movie at RKO. He was under contract with them and uh, had recently been nominated, a well-deserved nomination, for an Academy Award with the story of G.I. Joe. But Out of the Past is the film that helped cement the indifferent Mitchum. The morally ambiguous Mitchum, this movie let him play on the dark side of the sandbox. Because this character of Jeff Bailey, or Jeff Markham, isn't all good guy. And neither was Mitchum. When he made this movie, he hadn't yet been jailed over his marijuana rap, but he was already cultivating an image that ran contrary to most movie stars at the time. So, on to the movie. And again, I love it. Will is less enamored of it. But let's get down to our whys and what fors. Yes, I think it's about time I actually start explaining myself and stop <laughs> just making up complete nonsense <laughs> to distract everyone. Uh, so my big problem here, my first problem, is I find this movie dull. I think the pieces on this chessboard are fascinating. Robert Mitchum. Jane Greer, Kirk Douglas, you know, the direction and cinematography are impeccable. The dialogue is catchy and memorable. But I just can't give a damn. I don't care. Just like it seems to me that Robert Mitchum doesn't care. And I could be being too harsh here, but I think that generally the audience takes its lead from its main actor, its protagonist. And in this movie, Robert Mitchum is so calm and so collected that it doesn't seem like any of all the silly things that happen matter. Even his death at the end feels languid to me. It feels like me a script playing out before my eyes. Chess pieces moving. It's, and it's not engaging. All right. Well, hey, we are all entitled to our opinions. Yeah, even though yours is wrong. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Fair enough, buddy. I mean, really, no. fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> tell me tell me why this movie is good. Tell me why this movie is good. All right, gauntlet's been thrown. Let's uh let's see how this shakes out. This is a film noir, and it's one that is very closely associated with shadows and darkness. But it starts in the daytime. This movie opens on peaceful clouds billowing over a mountain. And it shows the easygoing life Mitchum has been building for himself as a simple gas station owner out in the open air in the country. He's just enjoying fishing in the mountains with his sweet girl next door, Anne, played by Virginia Houston. And she's musing poetically about the clouds and how when you die, your name is written on a cloud. It's very poetic and very foreboding. And then news arrives that Robert Mitchum's past is catching up with him. He's been recognized, and he has to go have a meeting with someone from his past. And this prompts Mitchum to drive uh, with Anne to Lake Tahoe, 
And as they drive, he tells her the story of his sordid past. And the shadows seem to close around them. When he picks her up, it's dusk, and the shadows just seem to envelop the car as they're driving, as they're heading back. It's a great device, you know, daytime while he's there in his picturesque existence. And then, as he gets back into his past, the darkness comes. It's great. Well, uh, you make that sound very intriguing, um, but here is another issue for me. Uh, so we, we talked about the usual suspects recently in episode 13, and that entire movie is a flashback, as told by everyone's favorite guy, Kevin Spacey. Yeah, just, <laughs> just a great guy, by all accounts. Uh, but no, that that's the point of the movie. That's the point of the usual suspects. It's a magic trick. I mean, and, uh, of course, Citizen Kane is also a gigantic flashback, even flashbacks within flashbacks. Uh, and I've, I've been told it's the best movie ever made. But but here, and they do this in the book as well, and me as the viewer and reader are pulled from the immediacy of what's actually happening, and then we spend so much dang time going back to what the actual meat of the story is. Literally what the entire crux of the plot is. I might just be biased here based on what I prefer storytelling to do, but uh, I'm sorry, children, but I fucking hate flashbacks. (laughs) When your uncle or grandfather tells you a story in real life, you know, sitting at the kitchen table about when they slapped the Pope or whatever... You know, that's an actual experience when you take like a 30 or 40 minute trip into the past in a film or a book. All that is happening is, to me, divorcing you from the immediacy and importance of where you're supposed to be, which is in the present. Yeah, I mean, it is a long flashback. Fun fact, my grandfather did meet the Pope. Did he slap him? Uh, <laughs> not that I know of. Uh he was in the Navy during World War II, and they reactivated him during the Korean War. And this time he was on a peacekeeping ship in the Mediterranean, and they landed in Rome. He got a 24-hour pass. And they told the guys that there was an opportunity for a select few of them to use their pass to meet the Pope. So the sailors had a choice. Meet the Pope or have a day and night in Rome drinking and carrying on, as sailors are often wont to do. Uh, My grandfather, uh, Pop, as we called him, said that most of the guys took the shore leave, but he chose to meet the Pope. Uh, And uh, to my knowledge, no, he did not slap the Pope. The lengthy flashback that Will's talking about here begins with Mitchum being hired by Kirk Douglas. Douglas here has been shot in the guts by the woman he loves, and he just wants her back. He doesn't even care about the 40 grand she stole from him. So, will Mitchum take the case? The, the scene is perfect, understated Mitchum. He sits across from Douglas, slouching until he stands up in a quiet pageantry and lights a cigarette, asking Douglas, what happens when I bring her back? The clear idea being that he doesn't intend to take the job if Douglas has murder on his mind. So, we get the idea that Mitchum's honest. Douglas even says he wants to hire Mitchum because, quote, Well, I know a lot of smart guys, and a few honest ones, and you're both, end quote. But is Mitchum honest? 
This is a central question to the movie, I think, and an interesting one when considering film noir as a whole. Yes, and that is an interesting question, and also one that I don't think is really examined here. I mean, he clearly betrays his employer, but I just I just don't see them really thoroughly examining this idea, you know, with, with the <sighs> characters or with the plot. All right, I, I think they get there. Um, or you could say I'm reading into it. We'll see. But the, the hiring scene in a private detective movie is always an important one. And it certainly is here because it sets up a piece of the theme. Mitchum is hired to find Jane Greer and bring her back to Kirk Douglas. But instead, he falls in love with her at first sight, lies about it to his employer, and runs away with her. That is a bad private detective. Imagine you hired a plumber to fix your toilet, and instead, he sees your toilet and likes it so much that he takes it home and installs it in his own bathroom, leaving you without a toilet. Jane Greer, I apologize for equating you with the toilet. I promise it was only done for comedic effect. <laughs> yeah, I have I have so many jokes here that like they're all sticking in my head in my cerebral <laughs> cortex, you know, the doorway of my mind, just trying to be first. Uh, yeah. You know, much, much, yeah, much like all the diseases in Mr. Burns' body from The Simpsons. Uh, <laughs> still, probably my favorite joke of all time. Yeah. Do, <laughs> Do you remember that episode offhand? Oh, yeah. And this <laughs> little cuddly bug is pancreatic cancer. Yeah, that's great. It's a good one. Uh, Kirk Douglas did an episode of The Simpsons. He certainly did. Chester J. Lampwick. That's a good episode. Anyway, back to Out of the Past. This is a major violation of the private eye client privilege. And there are other PIs in the genre that wouldn't dream of violating a client's privilege like that. I mentioned Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe earlier in the episode. In The Big Sleep, Marlowe goes to great lengths at personal peril for his client, General Sternwood, to protect the man's reputation and confidence. And here, Mitchum gets one look at the girl in the Mexican cantina, and his reputation for honesty is out the window. This could be the reason why his fate is sealed. More on that later. But fate itself plays a part in this story, like when Mitchum does see Kathy Moffat, played by Jane Greer, for the first time. He's been sitting and waiting at this cantina for any sign of her, and then she walks in. And in the voiceover, you hear Mitchum say that she walks in out of the sun, and he understands why Kirk Douglas doesn't care about the 40 grand. He says it, but watch his face here. It's a subtle reaction. It's really a non-reaction. And I'm not saying he should have pulled an awooga like he's like a wolf in a Tex Avery cartoon with his tongue hanging out and smoke coming out of his ears. But th- there should have been something more here. The whole plot hinges on this moment of Mitchum falling head over heels for this woman. And the only shot of it happening is him sitting at a table indifferent like he was before she walked in. I don't want to prove your point for you, Will, but... There are moments where Mitchum's understated style works against him. Yeah, that's a great illustration of what I'm trying to say. Because when you watch Mitchum, he, you know, he always has this cool veneer. That's, that's his bit, like Julia Roberts' smile. But he's a pro. But when he's at his best, I think, is when he has a clear, perhaps sinister goal. Like when he's working on multiple levels. That's when he's hitting home runs for me. Cape Fear, Night of the Hunter, and even a flick I rewatched recently, Holiday Affair, where he's not a villain, but he is coming after Janet Leigh so hard, 
trying to steal her away from her <laughs> dork of a partner. Like, he's always at his best, I think, when he has a mean streak, when he's a bit of a cad. And what bothers me here is that there's no character that he is playing. Like I said, he's a cipher, an emblem. He's nothing. He just strikes me as being bored. Like, he's bored with Anne, the the hometown girl, and he's bored with Jane Greer. The only thing I know for a fact that he loves is his next cigarette. (laughs) Remember that moment from The Godfather? I won't spoil anything big if you haven't seen it, listeners, but think of when Michael, Al Pacino, is in Italy and he sees Apollonia for the first time and he gets hit by the Thunderbolt. Once Michael sees this gorgeous Italian woman, there's a cut from her to him in a medium close-up, and he's stunned speechless. He's not overacting, he's just looking at her. And then it goes to her embarrassed, and it cuts back to him still dumbstruck in this medium close-up. Pacino is pretty understated, but the frame itself helps emphasize the moment. Yeah, it's also possibly the last time Pacino was ever understated. (laughs) Yeah. Something along those lines would have helped this movie sell the idea that Mitchum is taken with Jane Greer. And yes, there's a 25-year difference between when those films were made, and film grammar has evolved over time. I hate to speak about things in generalities, but medium close-ups and close-up shots weren't used as often back in the 40s. They were saved for big moments of impact. And Out of the Past does have two moments where... Uh, there's a very quick medium close-up shot of an actor being used to great effect. They occur at moments of shocking reversals. When Jane Greer shoots Mitchum's partner, Fisher, it's in the middle of a fistfight. Mitchum is fighting his old partner, and then, boom, the gun goes off, and the guy drops dead, and Mitchum turns around to see who fired the gun in a medium close-up. And his hair is mussed, and you see how shocked he is that Jane Greer is the one who pulled the trigger. And she can tell in his face there that he isn't okay with it. And she leaves. She leaves him with the dead body and the ramifications of the murder she just committed. Then there's one other moment where they use a great medium close-up shot on Kathy uh, in Mita Carson's apartment. She's just made a phone call to the building manager to get him to try and find the body of the crooked lawyer Eels. Sorry, I know we're jumping around, but just trying to make this one point. Mitchum is in the room listening. And when he makes himself known, he stalks towards her out of the shadows. And there's a big medium close-up on Jane Greer's petrified face. And you see how scared and shocked she is. Out of the Past uses shots like that sparingly. But I think they should have gone with a similar approach for Mitchum in the cantina, seeing Jane Greer for the first time. Give Mitchum a closer shot there, a brief one, something to mark the arrival of a huge shock to his life the arrival of Jane Greer. Because, and I don't want this to sound unkind, but even considering standards of beauty and how they are ever-changing, Jane Greer here in this particular scene just doesn't do it for me. She's a pale face with drawn-on eyebrows in an ill-fitting white dress and a big white hat. Later on, she has some fire in her eyes and some sex appeal, but here she's just too subdued. So it doesn't work to lure me in as a viewer. And there's nothing to truly sell me that Mitchum's into it. So it's a little weak. And if you're listening to this right now screaming out that you disagree and are heroically defending Mitchum's performance, give it another watch. See if you can see what I'm saying. 
Yeah, I completely agree with what you were just talking about. I mean, for a movie that hinges on this passionate romance, I'm not getting the passion. I mean, there's more heat between Mitchum and Kirk Douglas than with Mitchum and Greer. Like, And, like, that's a way they could have gone. Like, Mitchum is just cucking Kirk Douglas, you know? Like, extremely on purpose, and it doesn't actually have anything to do with Jane Greer. It's uh, some sort of rivalry. I hate to try and write, like, a different movie, you know? Like, uh, (laughs) you gotta talk about what we got. But it's like, I I see all the trappings of a classic, uh, but I I can't say this isn't a classic, uh, but I will say I don't care for it. It feels like a work in progress, like, yet to be refined. It has the right pencil marks, the right original sculpting but i'm just not getting what i want from it what does work for me here is the use of fate fate is often used in dramas of all kinds going back to the greek myths and beyond and it comes up in film noir a lot and there's a fatalistic quality to this movie the idea that mitchum's character isn't really in control of his own life but he's damned from the start and this endeavor the moment he takes the job And it could all come down to this one moment of the coin falling from his pocket. He drops a coin just as he stands to go meet Jane Greer. And the coin rolls and stops right at the foot of her table, just as Jose Rodriguez, the tour guide extraordinaire, is coming over to give his spiel about being a great tour guide and hawking silver earrings. And so is it fate that brings these three disparate individuals to the table at this exact moment in time to play out a tryst that's doomed from the start? Yeah, maybe. They certainly don't overplay it. There's no shot of the coin rolling on the ground. Nobody mentions it there. But it is there. Well, let's let's go ahead and talk about Jane Greer here. Uh, this is a Jane, uh, Jane Greer corner? Yeah, maybe a little bit. Maybe a little bit of a Jane Greer corner. Uh, Jane Greer, uh, birth name Betty Jane Greer, which she changed because she thought it was to, in her words, sissy. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, but she was a she was a bit of a starlet at an early age, you know, pageants and such for children, which I find inherently gross uh, because it's a catnip for monsters like Ringo Starr, who is of course. What? It was, of course, the legendary Krampus. Um, he's, uh, no, he's not. But when it... Well, hang on. I'm on a roll here. Uh, when it gets interesting <laughs> is that she had a bout of palsy that partially paralyzed her face, and she needed to work back with constant physical therapy to regain basic muscle function and speech. Uh, palsy is kind of a broad term, but it seems like it was probably uh, Bell's palsy that specifically affects the face. I don't know who this Bell guy is or why he invented Bell's palsy, but, you know, <laughs> come on, man, dude, you know, I don't know. Put your attention somewhere else. Uh, maybe maybe it occurred uh, from being forced to constantly smile for child pageants. <laughs> it, it also apparently gave her a specific look that helped her stand out. She stated herself that working for the studios, she never really got the meaty roles that she wanted or desired. She she was felt like she was always treated as a second or third tier talent. But she was a she was a singer after her pageant and model career and her bout with 
facial paralysis and uh, got recruited by Howard Hughes, no less, to star in the, the motion pictures. I mean, <laughs> I'd do it too. It's just that just that no one's asked. Um, but Chris, do you, do you want to ask me? Do you want to ask me something? Oh, William, sing us a song, would you please? <clears throat> some so listeners we'll just say some of somewhere over the rainbow i had to cut it because we don't have the rights to that song uh, but it was a flawless rendition beautiful uh, even better than uh, brother is sings i mean it, it was it was gorgeous i loved it and i'm sorry that i can't share it with you yeah eat your heart out judy garland <laughs> so just to add to your Jane Greer corner, Will, her arrival in the movie business came, as you said, courtesy of billionaire Howard Hughes. The Lee Server book goes into great detail about the unbelievable exploits of Hughes and his various uh, pursuits. Hughes saw a recruitment poster for the Women's Air Corps that Jane Greer was the model for, and he told his goons to go find her and bring her to him, like he did with so many young women, and he put her up in a house in Hollywood with her mother and just kept her there. Didn't even contact her for months. Just kept her cooped up. And, you know, she was a young girl. And she eventually started going out. And uh, Hughes had her followed. He had an army of spies. And she started seeing another man and eventually got married. And she had a contract with Hughes to make movies. But since he was such a monster, she sued to get out of that contract. And then she got a contract with RKO. And that's when she made out of the past. Just a few years later, though, Hughes bought RKO and was suddenly her boss again. And uh, Greer's pretty open in the Lee Server book about what happened and how after this movie, when Hughes took over RKO, he blacklisted her because she wouldn't leave her second husband for him. Hughes essentially ran RKO as a farm for getting himself young starlets. And he ran the company into a ground with his micromanaging. They would have movies held up for years because he wanted complete control over every aspect of them, especially the wardrobe and hair of the leading ladies. It's a fascinating lunacy that this man had, and if you're interested in the seedy side of Hollywood's glamour days, I suggest giving Lee Server's Baby I Don't Care a read. Uh, but Hughes was loyal to Mitchum. During Mitchum's arrest for marijuana, Hughes stuck by him. It could have ended Mitchum's career, but Hughes continued putting him in movies, and Mitchum always appreciated that. Hughes even visited Mitchum in prison once, uh, but he pulled a lot of shady stuff, like when he finally allowed Greer to act again in The Big Steel, opposite Mitchum again. It was only because no other actress wanted the part. <laughs> Mitchum was awaiting his trial for marijuana possession, and everyone was concerned it would ruin their career to be in a movie with him. Hughes thought the opposite and wanted to fast-track the movie because he thought he could capitalize on Mitchum's name being in the headlines. So to get the movie made before Mitchum wound up in jail, potentially, he allowed Jane Greer to make a movie again because she said yes. And when he called her on the phone to tell her that she had the part, he also gave her some other news. She was pregnant. She hadn't heard yet. She had been to the doctor to get tested and find out, and she was awaiting the results. But Howard Hughes somehow knew first. Guy had spies everywhere. It's insanity when you read about this guy. 
Yeah, I really have to read this book if uh, I I only knew how to read. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'll get right on it. I'll get right on it, I promise. But uh, anyway, I think uh, everyone can agree that Howard Hughes was a real class act. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you, you always knew what to get him for Christmas. Kleenex box shoes. So... <laughs> Back to the flashback and out of the past. There's a lot of inventive camera moves in this movie. Like when Mitchum is waiting for Jane Greer to show up at the bar, there's a great dissolve pan that shows the passage of time. The camera pans away from Mitchum, who's moping alone at the bar, wishing she would show, and it pans left to find him miraculously seated at another table. It's smooth. Shows the passage of time how bored he is, and just how desperate he is to see her again. And then in that same seemingly continuous pan, Jane Greer walks in. I love the dynamic here that Jane Greer creates because she doesn't go and sit next to him. It's a power play. She takes a table all of her own. She knows he's been waiting days for her, but she's measuring him up, seeing how she can best play this. And when Mitchum comes and sits next to her, it's a solid indication that she's got him. Well, this is excellent shooting and excellent choreography, but I have to ask you, uh, Bardley, is Mitchum smitten? He is so overcome that he doesn't care about his job anymore, or his entire life? Uh, Let me pose this question. I could believe that Mitchum hates his life so much, his profession, that he simply decides to go in with this crazy dame because it's more fun than what he's doing. But I do not believe that he is smitten. And partly because, obviously, he only has gaping skull eyes for me. I mean, <laughs> he, he put a ring on it, you know. So. I don't think there's anything to indicate that he hates his life and profession. But as I mentioned above, I do agree that the moment of Mitchum falling in love with her could have been emphasized more. You know, a, a thunderbolt moment. But you do get some electricity between them in the upcoming scene at the beach. This is great writing, I think, and and one of the reasons her characterization of the femme fatale works the way it's being set up. Jane Greer cuts right through the BS of this supposedly romantic moment on the beach, and she says to him, when do you take me back? You know, back to Kirk Douglas. It's very candid. She levels with him. She knows. He knows. But she's testing him here, seeing how far she can push her luck. We don't know yet as an audience how evil she might be, but she confesses to shooting Kirk Douglas and isn't apologetic for it, but she says she didn't steal the money. And then Mitchum utters a line that marks him as the eternal, apathetic model for the cool private eye. Baby, I don't care. Wow. That floors me. It's also curious the way they film it because it's a two-shot, as is often done in this movie, but Mitchum also has his back to the camera. The shot really favors Jane Greer. Frames are here amid a tangled bunch of fishermen's nets on the beach that have been left out to dry and to provide a thematic background for Mitchum to be ensnared in. He's a trout being caught in the femme fatale's fishing net. Again, uh, this film is expertly shot, but I'm not feeling anything. I'm getting this animal heat from Jane Greer, and Mitchum is still like, yeah, okay. And, I mean, that's 
That's kind of the appeal of Mitchum, his okay-sure quality, his innate chillness. But what I need from him here is hunger. Something predatory, like uh, the fire in the eyes, and I'm not getting that. I mean, you say his back is to the camera. I think that's on purpose, because it's like he's just not, he's just not giving it, you know? Hmm. I mean, we, you know, we, we talked Cape Fear in episode 8, and the way Mitchum looks at women in that movie, his looks are so incredibly disturbing. Like... We said it feels like he should be thrown in prison just for the way he looks at people, you know? But mm, yeah. they they tell the right story. Like, the hunger and the ferocity are there. When he looks at Jane Greer, I mean, he could be picking out wallpaper, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I hear you. And we've talked about it before, but the censors would never have allowed explicit sexual activity of any kind. But you get a raw bit of energy when they come in out of the rain from the beach and Mitchum dries her hair with a towel. Somehow seeing him running that towel over her with his rough hands, getting the water out of her hair, it lets you know how it would be if he were to throw her around the bedroom. And he tosses the towel on the lamp, the lamp goes out, and the camera dollies in, going over top of the lamp as it falls. And then, boom, the door bursts open because of the storm and the rain. It's clever staging. This film has a lot of that. It isn't just the gorgeous shadows that cinematographer Nicolas Musaraka and director Jacques Tournay put together. There are some fantastic camera moves, staging, and several long takes of note. But so much of it is born of necessity, like this fallen lamp and the door bursting open bit. They want to have the characters have sex, but they can't show it. So they find another way. Necessity begets ingenuity. And it applies here to the lighting approach of cinematographer Nicholas Misaraka as well. Academics and cinephiles are quick to cite the idea that post-World War II disillusionment and the influence of German Expressionism from the 20s resulted in the high contrast, dark shadows, and bright slashes of light that pervade these types of films. And they did, but in a far subtler way than is often written about. It wasn't some cognizant movement that filmmakers suddenly had. Nobody was going, Wow, guys, I sure do feel existential dread today because of the way we dropped the A-bomb on Japan. And have you heard about this Cold War? (laughs) Gee, it makes me want to paint shadows and tell stories about depressing downtrodden characters that have no escape from the drudgery of their daily lives. Hello, Dostoevsky. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it didn't happen that way. It, It was more of an indirect influence on the psyche. And the shadows themselves often come from a place of practicality, which is why I bring it up here. Uh, Because Lee Server writes in his book about an interview with Musaraka, he says, quote, his penchant for shadows actually had less to do with any feeling for Noir's dark deeds and paranoid atmosphere than with his dedication to simplicity and realism over technical window dressing, end quote. Server then goes on to quote Musaraka himself, who said, quote, all too often, We're all of us likely to find ourselves throwing in an extra light here and another there simply to correct something which is a bit wrong because of the way one basic lamp is placed or adjusted. If, on the other hand, that one original lamp is in its really correct place or adjustment, the others aren't needed. Anytime I find myself using a more than ordinary number of light sources for a scene, I'll find I've slipped up somewhere and the extra lights are really unnecessary. If you once get the feel 
of lighting balance this way, you'll be surprised how you'll be able to simplify your lightings. Usually, the results on the screen are better, too. End quote. A pretty practical guy. A lot of the setups in this movie were done with few lights and always with a bent towards using practical sources, like a lamp or a window whenever possible. And I think the best cinematographers today follow those same rules. We talked about Roger Deakins when we did No Country for Old Men. He is also all about practicality and using practical sources. Everything does look fantastic in this movie. Lighting is storytelling, just as much as any other aspect of a movie. But yeah, uh, Nicholas Musaraka, like DPs, just like actors and all crew members, I mean, they'd make upwards of five to six or more movies a year. It was a real production line. So his credits are almost innumerable. But he did help bring into Hollywood popularity the shadowy and stark light and dark look that we equate with film noir to this day. An evolution of German Impressionism based on the Chiaroscuro style of painting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these Chiaroscuro. Are, yeah, there, there you go. You know, these are the things to say when you want to sound <laughs> smart. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci is thought to have pioneered the effect in uh, his paintings, although it existed before in maybe slightly lesser values. But, you know, that da Vinci was always an attention hog. Real, uh, <laughs> real Kardashian, that guy. <laughs> uh, but, but here here in this film, Out of the Past, it, it's not harsh lighting, really, but a, a fading into darkness that I really appreciate. Like a drifting instead of a sharp delineation. It, it doesn't hurt that all the cigarettes in the world are being smoked throughout this movie. Uh, clouds of moving lines amidst this gauze of cigarette fog. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like when the poor uh, when the poor chump cop in the beginning orders a ham sandwich, I have expected it to have just a lit cigarette sticking out of it. You know, <laughs> I mean, like oh yeah, here's your ham sandwich and your cigarette. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> cigarettes are of course one of the worst things you can do to yourself, and they're also one of the best things you can do for black and white photography. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> such atmosphere. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, chiaroscuro is a fun one to say. A big word, but it is a deceptively simple concept. In Italian, chiaro means light and scuro means dark. You put them together with an Italian flourish and you do sound smart. Uh, but <laughs> just because the name is simple doesn't mean the execution is. Like Will said, painters would spend their whole lives mastering the effect of light and dark and how it shapes the human body. It applies here for the making of this film because Nicholas Musaraka studied a natural approach that helped define a genre. He filmed what is widely regarded as the first film noir movie, quote-unquote, first film noir movie, Stranger on the Third Floor, and he did a fabulous job on this film and countless other RKO movies, making shadows in all sorts of genres. It did a Western with Mitchum called Blood on the Moon, and the look of that is unlike any Western I've ever seen. It's so dark, and, and it's a pretty good Western. There's a fight scene that fans of Shane might really enjoy. Mitchum has a this fight in this bar with Robert Preston, and it's enveloped in darkness. Right at the start, the the fight, uh, Mitchum uses all his bullets in the gun, and then I, I guess because Musaraka wanted him to, he throws his pistol at the only 
lantern in the place, the ceiling lantern, smashing it to smithereens and cloaking everything in the darkness. But they didn't use stunt doubles, Lee Server said in his book, so you can really see that it's them fighting. It's pretty great. Uh, Anyway, back to Out of the Past. Jane Greer is quoted in the Lee Server book saying, quote, It was so dark on set, you didn't know who else was there half the time, end quote. And that's, that's a lot of fun. And another talent Musaraka had was finding the noir images in the daytime. When the flashback driving sequence is over at the 40-minute mark, Mitchum is dropped off at the Lake Tahoe place owned by Kirk Douglas. And even though it's a beautiful day at a gigantic estate, there's a sense of apprehension. The shot they chose is a low angle behind the gate on the property with this monstrosity of a gate that's 20 feet high and Mitchum is obscured behind it. It's like he's walking up to the gates of hell. It doesn't imbue you with a lot of confidence that things are going to go well at this meeting, despite the picturesque scenery. And this arrival brings one of my favorite moments in the film, something that was actually a mistake. It could have been a blooper, but they went with it and built it into the scene because it worked so well. When Mitchum is brought in to meet Kirk Douglas, Douglas offers him a cigarette. Mitchum says, smoking, because the actor Robert Mitchum was supposed to take the offered cigarette, but he realized he was still smoking a cigarette from the last take because this movie has so much cigarette smoking uh, that they're basically always smoking. So they went with it. And he even lights Kirk Douglas's cigarette with the end of his own. It's just such a moment. It's so cool. Well, yeah, as we as we both know, very fun accidents can and will and do always happen when making a movie or making anything. Especially when everyone is smoking every single cigarette that exists. I mean, I wish there was a blooper when Mitchum just accepted the second cigarette and simply smoked two at once through the rest of the scene. (laughs) 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 But uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and talk about Kirk Douglas now, because, I don't know, just feels right. Feels like the right time. And, like, what, what is there to say about Kirk Douglas? Well... He said plenty about himself in his no less than three autobiographies. So you can read those if you want. I, I might myself someday. I mean, the dude was birth named Ishur Danielovich. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Uh, and he had to learn how to fight in the streets as an immigrant kid because of rampant anti-Semitism. Kirk lived 103 years. He founded Kirkland Food purveyor of cheese that might not be cheese, cans of extraordinarily salted mixed nuts, and crossbows, probably. He, he taught the Irish how to fish, avoiding another potato famine. Some of the things I've said are true. Uh, I'll, I'll talk here about the three most influential movies to me when I think of Kirk Douglas. I, before you do, though, I just want to say... You know, god damn it. I, I actually did Google Kirkland food, Kirk Douglas, to check on that. And I, you tricked me. <laughs> he did not found Kirkland food. All right, yes, fine. We'll fact, <laughs> we'll fact check ourselves there. And also, as far as I know, there is no Kirkland crossbow. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, so speaking of uh, movies I remember with Kirk Douglas from when I was a kid, the first is... 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, based on the Jules Verne book, which I saw a lot, you know, trusty library rental. 
Kirk Douglas fights a giant squid with an axe. Or, to put it a little more appropriately, it's grips holding tentacles, flailing them at Kirk Douglas while he swings an axe around. <laughs> so, but, you know, enough said. Uh, how, how does it get any better than that? Uh, it was the same director, Richard Fleischer, made The Vikings. Another adventure tale, rollicking adventure tale, also starring Tony Curtis, a notoriously beautiful man who was also Jamie Lee's pop and fresh. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, of course. But me, as a wee lad, only had eyes for Kirk. Like, th there's an energy there. He's, he's like a fire hydrant struck with lightning that came to life. Like, some actors just leap off the screen. I mean, it seems like they could literally leap off the screen and either punch you or kiss you or kiss your girlfriend. And when Kirk Douglas kisses your girlfriend, you think, ah, what a lucky dame. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's really, like, a, a bit too much to talk about. 103 years to talk about. Uh, so, like I said, this autonomous fire hydrant you know, just refused to die. And I would encourage everyone to look into his work, because the last thing you could say about him was that he wasn't committed. And ridiculously handsome, in a similarly impossible and unique way as Mitchum. I mean, like, talk about a chin-off. Like, it's... Like, yeah. I mean, he's got, you know, he's got these stupid big bright eyes, stupid big smile, where you don't know if he wants to talk to you or eat you like a shark. And charisma just shines out of him. He's so sexy that Michael Douglas, his son, somehow became considered a sex symbol through some kind of osmosis. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think that if you had rubbed your baby on Kirk Douglas circa 1930s through the 60s, that baby would be named uh, Brad Pitt. And uh, uh, Your logic is sound. <laughs> uh, always. My logic is always sound. So, Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole, which we both saw a gorgeous film print due to our teacher, Gene Stavis, really reintroduced me to how good this guy is, and how interesting his performances are. He said himself that he found characters with severe flaws to be the most interesting. We've talked about Victor Retour and George Raft in previous episodes, and how I think they seem comfortable swinging punches and toppling temple columns, but are lost when it comes to anything else. Like, they just turn into lumps. So, Kirk Douglas played Spartacus, Ulysses, and he also played Vincent Van Gogh, and the immoral reporter in Ace in the Hole, and is not just comfortable in either type of role, but commanding. I mean, here he's smiling like a villain in a Hong Kong gangster flick, you know? Like, from the 80s, from the 90s, what have you. It's all genial menace. It's, it's very fun. And he's, he's much smaller than Mitchum, but it feels like he's ready to go off at any moment. Like, he could start swinging with short, hard punches and maybe actually take Mitchum out. Because Mitchum is, uh -huh. you know, always thinking about reclining in a beach chair and probably getting a <laughs> massage later. But no, like the guy had energy, and I think he's a great foil here to Mitchum. You know, Mitchum leans, Douglas stalks, and this was only his third movie. Uh, it was Mitchum's 35th credited role. You know, Kirk Douglas is clearly a star from the get-go, able to drop the clever dialogue like he made it up himself. You know, like, joke and find a prayer in the Bible, like I was saying before. You know, and he could convey the appropriate danger he needs to, and again, hold up to the severe star power of Mitchum. 
And, of course, as always, I've done a lot of lying in my time. I've lied to men who wear belts. I've lied to men who wear suspenders. But I'd never be so stupid as to lie to a man who wears both a belt and suspenders. Oh, ace in the hole. What yeah. a, just a classic. We'll talk about that eventually at some point, listeners. I I do want to do a deep dive into that movie because it's, it's one of my favorites. And that is technically a crime movie when you think about it. Oh, sure. It's, yeah. a, it's a noir in the daytime. It's another mm-hmm. one of those. But here and out of the past, there's a smiling malice that Douglas pulls off in this scene where he has Mitchum over for breakfast. And I do really like the way Douglas plays this. He's a gangster and he's now able to confront the man who betrayed him and stole his woman. So you'd think he'd explode with anger at Mitchum, but instead he's all smiles and bringing people back into the fold, as he says. It's not what you'd expect, so it works quite well. And it does speak to the arrival of a powerful screen presence in Douglas. Like I, I definitely agree with you there, Will. Like It's only his third movie, but he arrives fully formed, ready to be a movie star. The other cinematic moment that kills it here in this Lake Tahoe sequence is the reveal that Jane Greer has returned to Kirk Douglas. She wanders in, in the background of the scene you watch her approach in the middle of the conversation behind Mitchum and you see it before Mitchum does and it gives you a jolt because you don't know where things are with these three the last time we saw Jane Greer in the movie she had left Mitchum with a corpse that she had created so here the movie still has me what about you, Will? Like, do you are you still on board at this point? Because you you get that great hard boiled dialogue when Mitchum's saying to Greer, "You look like a leaf that the wind blows from one gutter to another." Like, ah, that's so good. You know, how can you not enjoy that? Well, it is good. Uh, I'm not going to deny that. And there's so much about this movie that is good and great. But this is why I'm so frustrated. So many excellent lines. It's shot so well. And, you know, unconventionally so. Pretty unique. And I still just don't care. I don't care. Mm. So I'm going to I'm gonna ask you a series of questions here. Uh, let me ask you this, Chris. Uh, how excited do you get when I tell you that I need to get my hands on some important tax papers? Does that, that thrill you? Uh, how excited oh, do you yeah. get when I tell you that this movie hinges on a bank book? Like, the main betrayal uh, between our two primary characters is revealed on a close-up of a conveniently left-behind bank book. Because every femme fatale writes down her embezzlements and accidentally <laughs> leaves behind this evidence. Uh, I, okay, I gotta give you that. It, it's pretty convenient. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, I can't I'm not... Deny. I, I'm not done. Uh, are you interested in a film where Robert Mitchum, in his final scenes of the film, picks up a phone and sighs because he's just so tired? Uh, and then he gets shot and dies in one heartbeat and then just falls out of the car dead. And then, hey, the movie's over. Uh, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Uh, are you interested in meeting some guy named Eels, which is a extremely distracting name, uh, who is on screen for two minutes or so, 
and his death matters to us, apparently, because of a convoluted frame that makes no sense. And let me let me surprise you with uh, just one last question. So, clearly, uh, they can murder eels and get these important, fascinating papers at any point in time. But they decide to just go through all this rigmarole so that they can frame Robert Mitchum for it. Why? Well, revenge. Just revenge. Just you know? fucking kill him. You're not thinking like a movie villain, Will. You have to think. Well, okay, but this like goes into like James Bond villain logic. Yes. You know? I just that doesn't that doesn't sit well with me. I mean, these are these are all huge plot points and just so incredibly uninteresting. It took me one last rewatch to even remember them. I mean, I actually forgot the ending of this movie. I forgot that Robert Mitchum died. And I've seen this movie like 10 times now. It's just it just doesn't it holds no impact for me. I hear you. And I'll give you that the MacGuffins are weak. The tax papers, the affidavit. I agree that they aren't all that interesting. And the maneuvering around them and Mitchum trying to find a fall guy for the murders. It's all sort of cribbed from the Maltese Falcon. And uh, the writer, Daniel Mannering, freely admitted as much uh, in a very self-effacing way that I appreciate. Uh, He said in an interview, the interviewer says to him, uh, oh, it strikes me how similar the devices in Out of the Past were to the Maltese Falcon. (laughs) Mannering responded, quote, well, don't think I haven't swiped from the Maltese Falcon often. End quote. Like, <laughs> that's, that's great. I love somebody admitting to that. And he goes on to say that, you know, Chandler stole from Hammett, so he figured he could too. That was from a book called Backstory 2, Interviews with Screenwriters of the 1940s and 1950s by Patrick McGilligan. It's from an interview Mannering did at the Northwestern University. And to go with what you're saying, Will, I think the issue here is that the MacGuffins, like papers and affidavits, aren't as cool as a Maltese falcon. You know, we're talking about a rare bird made of gold and jewels worth an untold fortune. That's a MacGuffin I can get behind. I I don't particularly care about a bunch of files. So having a boring MacGuffin is a problem. And having two boring MacGuffins is also a misstep. It complicates things unnecessarily. Uh, When things move quickly, like they do in this movie, it becomes difficult to tell what the hell's going on. Now that I've watched it a few times in a row, I can say that it all holds up, but it happens at a breakneck speed when the explanations occur, so it can whiz by you. And audiences at the time, uh, when it came out, said similar things. People would ask Robert Mitchum about it after the movie came out, and Lee Server said in his book that Mitchum would just say that a few pages of the script had been, quote, lost in Mimeo, end quote. A mimeograph, for any youthful listeners out there, was an early version of a copy machine, basically using ink and stencil. Oh, yeah, sorry, excuse me a moment. Uh, my beeper is beeping. Uh, oh, no, we're, it's just uh, just Dwight D. Eisenhower warning me again that the military-industrial complex will plunge the world into an eternal state of war. Yeah, <laughs> old news, Dwight. Old news, Dwight. But 
there are outstanding moments in the chaos. Most of them involve smoking in some way, uh, shape, or form. Like when Misham is getting a ride from his cabbie buddy and he gets in the front seat, it takes the cabbie's cigarette right out of his mouth, has a puff, gives it back to the cabbie, the cabbie takes another puff and says Mitchum can keep it. Like, oh, that's a great gag. And, and it's things like that that smooth over the jagged edges here. To me, that business keeps it moving. Uh, and when Mitchum is going after one of the MacGuffins, he's outside Eels' office building, waiting to see what Meta Carson does. And Mitchum cuts such an impressive figure in that trench coat, looming in the background, watching waiting, smoking. This is what film noir is all about. Mitchum in a hat and a trench coat, smoking cigarettes in the darkness. I am being very hard on this movie. And it's like, who, who am I to do so? You know, it's it's beautiful. It looks beautiful. And there are wonderful moments. It's just, I wish I loved the movie. I wish I wanted to watch it for the 11th time. Every time I've been watching it, you know, just hoping it would click for me, I sighed like Mitchum does as he picks up the phone to rat out Jane Greer. Ah, but what about this scene? This is my favorite scene in the movie, and arguably the one moment that made Mitchum into the immortal badass that he is. He goes into Kirk Douglas's club and through the service entrance, and straight up the steps, and he barges into the office of one of Douglas's lackeys, who's trying to light a cigarette, and he says, What do you want? And the phone rings, and he goes to answer it. And Mitchum just knocks him out cold, one punch, without even saying anything. And then he answers the ringing phone to throw off the guards, and searches the desk, finds the MacGuffin, and then he takes the lighter that the lackey was having a hard time with, and lights a cig on the first try. That's just so cool, man. Yeah, I know he's cool. Think I would marry someone who wasn't cool? Uh, no, well, but I mean, yeah, then he's right. in the hallway with the chiaroscuro darkness, and it's evoking all sorts of tension as he heads down the steps, breezing past the two goons with all the confidence in the world. And uh, the camera here does something technically that is pretty neat. It follows him, probably on a wheeled Fisher dolly, pushing in after him as he gets to the steps. And you think the camera is going to have to stop, but it keeps going, seemingly defying gravity as it arcs over the steps, continuing down with Mitchum. They must have had it on some kind of arm or extended rig, but whatever it was, it was pretty cool because this is before Steadicam existed. Uh, Steadicam, for any listeners who don't know, is a stabilizing rig that allows a camera to move smoothly and gives you all those shots that follow Ryan Gosling around like in the movie Drive. Yeah, there are some seriously smooth moves to be seen here. I'd love to have been on set when these machinations were figured out. I mean, one of one of my favorite things is problem solving in the moment, be it a, an artistic or a practical problem. And then, you know, having it actually work out before your eyes. It's just like so, such a satisfying feeling. And almost as satisfying as uh, my husband smoking a cigarette. But, (laughs) (laughs) so, what you're talking to me about here is, like, the bells and whistles. And I'm I'm talking about how this movie just fundamentally doesn't work on a story level. So, I think that's that's the main dispute that we're having. 
I believe that it does work on a story level. And I have a new segment that I think you're going to enjoy that will show the way that it works. But anyway, before I get to that, here might be as good a place as Eddie to mention Jacques Tourner. And again, I, I double-checked the pronunciation there, listeners. And that's how the French say it. Uh, you'll have to forgive my Jersey accent, but uh, but it's Tourner. Uh, I admittedly have not seen enough of Tourner's movies, but this one is a keeper. I love what he was able to put together. And there was one bit in the Lee Server book there where Tourner talked uh, very eloquently about what Mitchum is able to do. And it's the same sort of thing I was talking about last episode with Sean Connery in The Untouchables. Uh, and it's why I respect Connery so much as an actor in that scene with the whole uh, Mahashka business on the bridge and how he actually listens to what Kevin Costner says before he reacts. Uh, and that's what Mitchum does here in this movie. And uh, Tornare said, quote, There are a large number of players who don't know how to listen. While one of their partners speaks to them, they simply think, I don't have anything to do during this. Let's try not to let the scene get stolen from me. Mitchum can be silent and listen to a five-minute speech. You'll never lose sight of him, and you'll understand that he takes in what is said to him, even if he doesn't do anything. That's how one judges good actors. End quote. I couldn't agree more. That is directing, and I love it. And Tornier's instructions to Jane Greer about how to play her character were also wonderful. You, you can hear Jane Greer describe it in the uh, word-of-mouth intro on TCM for the movie. But Tornier didn't speak English terribly well, and he told uh, Greer that the look he wanted for Kathy Moffat was impassive. Yeah, impassive. Uh, no big eyes. And she said, and this is from an interview Lee Server did in his book, Greer said that Tornier said, quote, In the beginning, you act like a nice girl. But then, after you kill the man you meet in the little house, you become a bad girl. Yes? First half, good girl. Second half, bad girl. End quote. End my bad French accent. Oh, I thought that was uh, Keep just, it simple. <laughs> I thought you were just bringing your Philly fully into it. I was... Uh... Oh, God. Nobody in Philly says <laughs> like that. Philadelphia cheese stick. Uh. <laughs> Jane Greer really worked for me in a scene that came up before uh, Mitchum goes to meet at Carson's place and he's sneaking in amid all those incredibly sexy shadows each and every shot of this movie is a photo you could hang in a gilded frame in your house like it, was a master but Jane Greer here enters the room and Mitchum has to hide and there's a shot where he hides in the darkness, out of focus in the foreground, and then in the brighter interior is Jane Greer crossing, going to the telephone. She has a call to make, and she has to frame Mitchum for murder. And that shot, with Mitchum in the foreground, out of focus, in the shadows, is what film noir is all about. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, it's beautiful. This movie is beautiful. And she has to frame him because why? Look, I, lo I love pretty pictures. I love these actors. I just fucking wish that they were doing interesting things. Also, you you mentioned Meta Carson. I believe that was the brand name of my first boombox. You know, the, 
<laughs> the one I used to carry around my rural Vermont town, you know, blasting rage against the machine on cassette tape. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'm, and I'm reminiscing. All right, you, you back to it, Chris. You, you go back to it. Convince me. All right, reeling you in here. Uh, I'll get to her motivations in a moment. I think they all make sense. You'll see. But, but here in the scene, Jane Greer comes alive for me. She has this mink fur coat, and her hair is done up with the hanging sparkle of those earrings. The dress is black and tight. It shows off her shoulders and a bit of cleavage in a classy but alluring way. She looks the part, and she acts it. Here I believe she is a woman who could twist three men around her pinky finger. Because here comes Mitchum out of the shadows, interrupting her little scheme to frame him, and she has to think fast. I mentioned it before, but there's a terrified medium close-up on her because she knows Mitchum's heard everything. She knows he knows. And she wails that she doesn't want to die. And Mitchum has that great line, Neither do I, baby, but if I have to, I'm going to die last. Like, ah, yes, that is hard-boiled dialogue. And she has to think fast there because she's coming up with a story. And she's got him up against that window, backlit like an angel, despite the venomous lies that are spewing out of her mouth. It's all lies. And does Mitchum know it? Does he believe her? Well, he gets real quiet. He speaks in a whisper, tells her he loves her. And that's where the tension for the rest of the movie comes, because he says that he's going to go along with her. But will he? Well, that takes us to the end. Yeah, the way you put all this works much better than what I'm seeing. Because I, I want to believe what's supposed to be happening here, uh, but I, I don't. Uh, I mean, you you mentioned Ryan Gosling and Steadicam earlier, which I believe he's... I think that's the only way you could shoot Ryan Gosling, actually, is with the Steadicam. But, uh, like, you know, he's like... Let's take uh, Only God Forgives, which is a movie you don't care for, if I remember. Well, yeah, it's not really a movie. It's it's just very pretty shots, one after the other. Yeah, <laughs> well, we disagree about that. It's like we disagree now. Because <laughs> uh, I think it actually is a very simple movie with uh, characters that actually make sense. I mean, take, uh, take Ryan Gosling, Baby Goose. Uh, you know. <laughs> but, you know, he's just wearing a T-shirt. And uh, I think this relates because... You take the other characters in this movie, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas as his, like, way too sexy mother, uh, and the other two main actors, uh, and I'm really sorry I'm going to butcher these names, uh, Vithaya Pasringarm, uh, sorry, uh, and Ratha Fongham, uh, even more sorry. Uh, but they, they bring so much energy, all these characters, and Ryan Gosling, uh, Baby Goose, is a vacuum. But that's the point. He's an empty vessel, like, looking for meaning. Like, that's the theme. Like, can a guy find a soul when they weren't given one? And I, I don't even know what Robert Mitchum wants here. He doesn't seem to want Anne, the small-town girl, or he doesn't seem to want Jane Greer, even though he says he does. I mean, she's supposed to be the fiery love or lust of his life, and I'm just not getting this. And I love Robert Mitchum. He's my husband for eternity. He's the coolest, but 
to me, he's literally too cool for this movie. Like, the only time he actually does seem alive or engaged is when he's squaring off with Kirk Douglas. And and this kind of relates to when I'm going to talk about the remake uh, towards the end. And I think the remake actually does something interesting that doesn't exist in this book or film. I mean, but I, I don't want to get off track on that yet. Uh, let's let's talk about this ending. Interesting tidbit from the Lee Server book. They actually did film Jane Greer shooting Kirk Douglas and killing him. But in the edit, director Jacques Tourneur uh, and the editor decided to cut it out. They thought it would be better to experience the death with Mitchum coming in and uh, finding it and being shocked. And I love that. I, I think it's the sort of subjective point of view filmmaking that many noir stories, detective stories, are famous for. And I love that they forego the traditional dramatic irony here and reinforce the scene from Mitchum's point of view. And I just disagree. (laughs) 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 Of course. (laughs) I mean, the, the one scene we get with Kirk Douglas and Jane Greer where you see that he's actually an abusive asshole, you know, he's not smiling anymore. Uh, but it's like, I want to see them interact further. Like, that's character development. It, it's the one break we get from Mitchum's POV. It's the one thing that isn't directly something that he's experiencing. And I just want more of that. You know, what I want is these three good or great actors interacting without the burden of this excessive plot that is just burying everything. I mean... I want to see Douglas and Greer in this horrible, possessive relationship. I mean, she fucking shot at him four times, and she <laughs> missed, you know, she missed three of those times. And they're still yeah. together. Like, I want to understand that. Like, I want to understand that crazy relationship. I want to stand all these crazy relationships. But I don't get to. Because some dude named Eels has some documents, you know? And, like, I have to remember the name Medic Carson. Well, buddy, I got some ideas about that crazy relationship, and I'm going to tell you about them. I want to take a look here at Jane Greer's Kathy Moffat, because this moment, this decision to kill Kirk Douglas is a big one for her. She's been maneuvering this whole time, just like Mitchum said earlier. She can change sides so smooth, he says. And we've talked about it before, like, back when we did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in episode 10. When you have a story told from the POV of the hero solving the mystery, you can have a bit of a villain problem. The villain winds up underdeveloped because you don't spend enough time with them, seeing all their machinations. Or at the end, the villain is a a reveal, or, or there has to be a dump of exposition and a big speech to make all the other plot points make sense. And so often... That means that some of the villain's steps don't make sense. So let's try this. This is going to be a new segment called the Villain Rundown. Villain Rundown. <laughs> now, villain. wait, wait. You say it. Say it again. Villain Rundown. Villain Rundown. 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 Now, bear with me, because this is a longer segment, but I promise it'll be worth your while, and it'll give you some fun fat to chew on. We're going to see if we can make all of Jane Greer's moves add up. So, at the beginning, she's with Wit Sterling, Kirk Douglas. 
and she shoots him. She fires four times and hits him once and steals 40 grand of his money. Those are the facts. We don't know why she did it. Maybe she got tired of him being a doormat she could walk on. Maybe he abused her. He does slap her at the end of the movie, but for all we know, that's the first time that happened. Who knows? But she shoots him, and she takes 40 grand of his money, and goes home and packs. She has her friend and maid help her weigh the baggage, and then she goes and gets some vaccinations for her travels. Those leave her a little ill, but she heads down south to Mexico. There she sits and waits for her steamer out of the country, and she spends some time alone in a bar finds one that plays American music for a dollar, and she can see herself on 56th Street, sipping bourbon. Yeah, and at this point I actually thought, uh, what if Warren Oates Benny was playing piano in this flick collided peripherally with Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia? But But, but hey, hey, I think uh, from what you said, the most telling thing to me is when you yourself said... uh, who knows, if you remember. Yeah, well, well I like, just said... Yeah, who yeah. does know? Who does know what is actually happening? Well, but that's the beauty of the villain rundown. We're, we're extrapolating. Uh, so, she's there in Mexico, and a man shows up in town, an American, and Kathy knows a tourist when she sees one. This one's different, and she knows right away. So what's her play? Get on the next ship out of town, going anywhere? This man found her once. He can do it again. Best to size him up. And she knows how to handle it. She gets done up in her pure white dress that paints her an angel with that big white hat sitting atop her head like a giant turtle dove and she goes over to the bar to see what this mystery man is all about. And the second he buys her those earrings, she knows she's got him. The trout is nibbling on the line, but she needs to reel it in. So she strings him along at the bar. And then at the beach. And then she tells her tale of woe about hating Kirk Douglas and shooting him, but not taking a dime of the 40 grand. Her first big lie to him. And he says, baby, I don't care. Hook, line, sinker. She's reeling the trout in. And he's a handsome one. And she might as well have a toy to play with. Cats do enjoy batting a mouse around in their paws before they finish their snack. She decides to keep him around a little while longer. Use him to fend off whoever else Kirk Douglas might send after her. And so it goes. He has money. She enjoys his company. They have fun. From Mexico to San Francisco. You are doing so much work to make this movie work. (laughs) uh, That the movie can't bother to do for itself. In my my opinion. (laughs) Yes. I, well, I shall hush. That's... I shall hush, and you, you, you shall continue. But... So then that little twit Fisher finds them, and they have to separate. Again, she is left with an opportunity. She could just leave with her 40 grand. But Mitchum has been picking up the tab so far. Why break into her savings if he'll keep on paying? And she must like him enough. It's not hard to imagine why a woman might enjoy the company of Robert Mitchum. So she decides to meet up with him at the cabin. And that little twit P.I. Fisher finds them again. The two big bad boys start wrestling, and it thrills her a bit, seeing blood spilt over her. She likes it. You can see it on her face in that scene, but they're running short on time, so she takes her gun and kills Fisher. But then Mitchum turns around and looks at her, and she sees that he can't handle the murder. 
So it's time to leave. And she does. She leaves. And why should she care? She's got 40 grand. She's fine. Except she isn't. Somehow, she blows through the money, and this must have happened off-camera because in no less than three years, she's back with Kirk Douglas. And why would she go back unless she was out of money? Douglas says, towards the end, that she came back crawling on her hands and knees. So, clearly, she comes back, she lies, and tells Kirk Douglas about how Mitchum killed Fisher. Probably says that Mitchum took the forty grand too. Everything she did... She puts on Mitchum. Now, this is pure speculation, (laughs) but Douglas does take her back, and she's back to living as a gangster's ball. I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, uh, uh, but uh, aside from Kirk Douglas being a smooth criminal and Mitchum being Mitchum and the brilliant cinematography, uh, quite possibly my... Favorite moment of this film is that look that Jane Greer has on her face when Mitchum is fighting, as you aptly said, his twit of a partner. I, mean, I, I don't know about you, but this is one of the only times that the film really feels alive to me. I mean, I I dated a girl back in the day, and this girl enjoyed, um, I think the best way I could put it is uh, gladiator fights. Yeah. Uh, She liked seeing me fight other random guys for her honor. Uh, You know, this relationship Mm. didn't last particularly long. But I understand that look on Jane Greer uh, during this scene because I've, I've actually seen that look. And I find that to be wonderfully visual storytelling. Like, she gets off on this shit. She's the predator here. Like, she craves the adrenaline like a drug. Like, her man fighting for her. She likes controlling people. And then she shoots the twit and scampers off and leaves her bank book. And then I'm just annoyed again. Because none of those actions actually make any dang sense whatsoever. Uh, I hear you there. The, The bank book is weak. But on with the rundown. One day, Joe Stephanos spies Mitchum working at his gas station. He comes back and reports it to Kirk Douglas. And this part is speculation because we don't know if the whole revenge plot to frame Mitchum is Kirk Douglas's plan or if it could be a bit of Lady Macbeth. Maybe Jane Greer put the idea in Douglas's brain. We don't know. But I like that, though. It it could be that that's the case because she does help him execute the plan. You understand that you're saying words like uh, who knows and could be. And possibly. That's the fun of the villain rundown. <laughs> All right. I'll, 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 go ahead. Go on. Go on. She plays along with Mitchum arriving and allows Kirk Douglas to believe he's in charge uh, because she doesn't know how Mitchum will react. And she's shocked to find that Mitchum doesn't fight it. He goes along with the blackmail. And that intrigues her. She hedges her bets and goes to see Mitchum when he's alone in his room. And she throws herself at him in the Tahoe house, saying she had no choice and she's sorry and he can't he forgive her. And then something happens that has never happened before for her. A man rejects her. And she can't understand it. Mitchum turns her down, says, I have to sleep in this room. And that won't stand for her. 
Her ego won't allow it. So now she takes an active part in his destruction again, helping in the arrangements for Eels' murder, uh, placing the phone call to the hotel doorman herself. She just didn't know then that Mitchum was in the room hearing her make the call. And when he reveals himself, she's shocked. She was thinking she had him all but standing on the gallows awaiting his hanging. But now he's in the room. Time for some quick thinking. And she sells it. She sells it like a Girl Scout with one box of Thin Mints left. It wasn't her idea. It never was. She still loves him. The affidavit, they made her sign it. She didn't want to. And if he'll help her, it'll be okay. And he kisses her. So maybe he's still a dumb trout on the hook. But then the doorbell rings. She has to hide him on the balcony. And Stephanos walks in, saying that he really did kill Eels. Yeah, you're writing a better movie than the one that I saw. Like you were, you were pretzeling yourself to make it work, just like Anne and the deaf kid uh, pretzel themselves to protect Robert Mitchum. No, it, it totally works uh, up until here. Uh, this part is a little weak, but uh, Jane Greer is confused. She doesn't know if Mitchum is really on her side and if he might come out on top. And it's here that she splits the difference. So she gets in with Stephanos. This is the weakest part of her story because we don't really see Stephanos coming under her thumb. We just see him doing her bidding. We know Stephanos goes out in the mountains to kill Mitchum on Jane Greer's orders alone. It's not Kirk Douglas's orders because he did not know where Joe was or what he was doing when they all come together. And that's the wedge that Mitchum uses to drive between her and Kirk Douglas when he shows up at Tahoe. Jane Greer wanted Stephanos to kill Mitchum. And then, and this is pure speculation, I admit it, but she would probably have Stephanos kill Kirk Douglas. We don't know. But anyway, now Mitchum has Kirk Douglas turned against her. And Jane Greer is not happy about this. Kirk Douglas is slapping her around, saying he's going to kick her teeth in. He's going to break her, but he underestimates her. Well, everything you're saying makes perfect sense, and it sounds like a, you know, good story. That's why you're a good writer. But uh, that's not what oh, I'm thanks. watching. Yeah. <laughs> Compliment sandwich, I believe, is what that's called. You're a good writer. You're completely wrong. But you're a good writer. Oh, thanks. So. <laughs> <laughs> Look, all right, so, so Jane Greer, I mean... She's supposed to be like a prototype of the femme fatale. And I, I, I agree that she is a prototype. Uh, what she is isn't an actual character. She's as much of a plot device as those dumb frickin' papers that Eels had that are so frickin' important that actually don't matter. Uh, she's a contrivance. It's fine for a character to be soulless, but then that has to be what the movie is about. And I'm just not getting that here. She herself is a MacGuffin to me. She is no more or less than a plot device in my eyes. I disagree. And what I say next holds the key to why she isn't a plot device. Her last play uh, is the same as her first play. Shoot Kirk Douglas. But this time she makes the shot count and she puts him down. And that part is important, and it's the key to understanding her whole motivation. She has killed Douglas when she's alone in the Tahoe house. She has the money 
upwards of 50 grand. Why doesn't she take it and run? Because something has been awakened in her. She's found an adversary she could admire. She realizes she's been backing the wrong horse this whole time. Her equal is actually Mitchum. And so, in a way, she's come to believe her own lies from the scene in Maida Carson's apartment. She wants to head to Acapulco again with the one man who managed to stand up to her evil scheming. Only then can she be happy. They can be on a beach, just the two of them. I believe everything she says to Mitchum in that last talk that they have out on the terrace with the mountains in the background. She believes they deserve each other. Mitchum is the only man who's been able to go round after round with her. So she wants him. She wants to go back to where they first met, start all over. She wants to wrap this impressive specimen around her finger because he has been a challenge. But he proves to be too much of a challenge and calls the cops on her. So she kills him and then tries to take out the cops but dies in a hail of gunfire. Yeah, that sounds like a uh, very interesting character to see in a movie. Um, when are you making it? Because uh, I, I, I love that character that you just described. Uh, what movie is she in? Oh, this movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm being a I'm being a stinker. But uh, no, but but genuinely, like I just I, I, I like I like who you're talking about. Uh, but I just yeah, I'm just not getting it, man. I'm sorry. All right. Well, uh, we're just going to have to disagree here because I think it all pretty much makes sense. And I think that's part of what helps make Kathy Moffat, played by Jane Greer, such a wonderful villain. It's greed and self-preservation up until that moment that she decides she's finally found an appropriate challenge in Mitchum and equal. And that's scary. Like, I believe her here. And I think that that makes her one of the best femme fatales. It isn't just about the money. She could have killed Kirk Douglas and taken the money and ran, but she stays. Because the money isn't enough. She's changed. That's a character arc for the villain, and you don't see that too often. And I think that's one of the reasons this character, this performance from Jane Greer, is held in such high regard among film noir fans and you can see the echoes of it in countless other films even up into recent times look at gone girl and i won't get specific in case you haven't seen it but there are echoes of that here yeah i see what you're saying there i think gone girl is such a weird movie uh and i actually highly recommend it specifically because it fooled me I mean, I wasn't familiar with the source material, and I still am not. But I loved the feeling of thinking I was watching one movie, and then some specific things happen, and I say to myself, well, now I don't know exactly what I'm watching. This is fun. And then one very specific thing happens, and I say, aha, this is exactly the movie I didn't know I needed. But, <laughs> well, but I'm glad you brought this up, because to me it illustrates my problems with Out of the Past, and uh, better than, than I was doing myself. Because uh, Rosamund Pike uh, in this movie, as the gone girl, uh, I see her motivations and I see her machinations. And I, I really don't see what the darn Jane Greer's character is. 
I mean, despite everything you just said, I that sounds great, but I'm I'm not seeing that, uh, mm. or or what she's trying to find exactly, or why, or what have you. I mean, everything she does is like she's making it up as she goes along, which you know is okay, but it it just feels floundering to me. Uh, we're not going to see eye to eye on this one. I enjoy the characterization of Kathy Moffat and think it all plays together quite well. One last note on her here. I love Jane Greer's outfit in that final scene. She's dressed head to toe in black, fully embracing the evil within her. And she's wearing uh, what almost looks like a nun's habit over her hair. It's a wonderful juxtaposition for this murderer to be wearing these holy looking clothes. Okay, but back to fate. Fate is big in film noir. Fatalism. This idea that you can't escape your doom no matter what you do. Sometimes you just have the unlucky turn and it seems like you're born to lose. Like back in the Greek myth days when Zeus just didn't like your face or he was jealous of you so he ruined your life through no fault of your own. But here I think the doom is of Mitchum's own making. It's that kind of fate that one action you take ruins you, and it doesn't matter how many babies you save from burning orphanages, you're doomed because of one wrong action. In this case, that action is not being truthful. Kirk Douglas hired Mitchum and brought him into this because he was supposedly a smart and honest guy. But Mitchum wasn't honest. He ran off with Jane Greer and lied about it, and so that one transgression proved to be enough to damn him for life. That one mistake just comes out of the past to claim him. It's inescapable. Joe Stephanos just happened to drive by the gas station and see Mitchum pumping gas. But it's fate. He was always going to drive by and see Mitchum pumping gas. You can't escape your past misdeeds, no matter where you run. Or maybe it was just as Mitchum says to Jane Greer in their last conversation as he pours her a drink. He's sitting on the couch with a shot of bourbon. He says that their tour guide, Jose Rodriguez... Wasn't much of a tour guide after all. Because that man's appearance at the Marisol bar at that exact moment when they met conspired with the coin that fell out of Mitchum's pocket to bring them all together at Jane Greer's table in such a way that, well, it could just be fate. And I love that they don't say that it's fate in the movie. Nobody says it out loud. There's no cornball soliloquy about cruel fate. It's just Mitchum having a last drink and saying that line about Jose Rodriguez before he smashes his glass in the fireplace like a badass. What a great way to end this, giving the doomed man a moment to reflect on how this all turned out. I love it. And I so wish I could appreciate this story like you do, Chris. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I like to like movies. I like to love movies. I love movies. And I just want to love, Chris. Like... <laughs> <laughs> so I want I want to make this very clear. I am extremely happy you get all of what you were just talking about from this film, and it frustrates me that I don't. But so it go. I mean, sometimes it just doesn't click with you, you know. Mm. And yeah, yeah. I'm I don't know, but you know, I, I'm happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> I know I sound very happy, but you know, let's um, 
Well, let, let's let's talk about uh, the the very last scene after uh, Jane Greer and Robert Mitchum have uh, died. Uh, Anne, remember her? Remember Anne? Yeah. Uh, you know, she she's sort of reluctantly letting this uh, this cop dummy take care of her, but she has some last words with the deaf kid, asking him point blank if he thought Mitchum would prefer being with Jane Greer instead of her. You know, well, I think how she puts it is, was he going to go with her? Uh, and and the kid thinks and says yes. And despite this essentially being the question, did that boy I like really like me? Uh, I mean, I think I think it works. And, and I, I can like it as an ending. Because what she's posing, the question, is patently silly. But we also ask these dopey questions of ourselves and others all the time. It's inherently human. And is the kid telling her what he actually believes, or just telling her what he thinks she needs to go here to, to go on with her life? I mean, you know, maybe wind up with this dull cop. Maybe she'll abscond and go to the big city. You know, who knows? Uh, also, who cares? Because she's another non-character in this movie. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if she mattered, then, you know, maybe this whole thing would have more of an impact. In my opinion, she's basically just a dumpster for Mitchum to load with uh, exposition and flashbacks. Oh, but, uh, but what about that scene when she drops him off at the Lake Tahoe house? He he kisses her hand and says, save that for later. Like, oh, that's, that's great. That's great. But, okay, so... God damn it. <laughs> Why do you hate this movie? I don't know, man. I don't know, but I really do. I don't so, know. I wish I I wish I knew why. I wish I knew too. So <laughs> I I've had some conversations with friends about this ending and how at least it gives a shred of hope at the end. The idea that Anne goes off and can live a happy life, not being burdened by the ghost of Mitchum, you know, her, her one true love. But that guy she goes off with, the, the I don't know if he's a park ranger or a cop, but... Well, he's a park we ranger talk, in the book, but he's a cop yeah. in the movie. Yeah. We didn't talk much about him here, but he kind of sucks. Every scene he's in, he proves to be a whiny, jealous man-child, and I doubt very much that... And is going to have much of a life with him, you know? Yeah, uh, unlikely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a resignation on her part. Is how I how I see it. Um, Now I really now I really have to finish digging my own grave and covering myself with dirt um, because (laughs) I'm I'm about to talk about the remake of Out of the Past, 1984's Against All Odds. Mm. This, yes, yeah, uh, picked up a library copy complete with several commentary tracks, and uh, I'd, I'd, I'd seen this movie three times in the last day. So, <laughs> yes, this movie stars a, a first build Rachel Ward, Jeff Bridges, uh, James Wood, and oh, hey, look at that, Richard Widmark. Oh, and hey. by golly, Jane Greer is in it too. Uh, so, this movie has quite rightfully been forgotten because it's <laughs> pretty pretty dang forgettable. 
one thing I, I, I can't say about Out of the Past is that it's forgettable. Uh, it was directed by Taylor Hackford, or as he's known now, Mr. Helen Murren, which, like, uh-huh. no no kidding. Yeah. Uh, you, you might also know him as the director of The Devil's Advocate. Uh, that's the movie, of course, where Al Pacino sticks his finger in holy water and the water boils because he's the devil. That's that's that movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but here's what I have to say. And uh, this is actually kind of this is actually kind of hurting me as I say it out loud. Uh, I I like the remake better. And, Judas. And, and no, it's it's not a better movie. I would never possibly say that it's a better movie. But I enjoyed it more. I enjoyed uh, watching the remake more than I like watching Out of the Past. I hate you. I yes, I know, I know. This might be the end of the podcast. <laughs> but the, the the remake actually made more sense to me, plot wise, and not just that, but the characters' reasons for doing what they're doing actually add up for me the way they don't in out of the past i can't believe that i'm saying this as i'm going on (sighs) like the jeff bridges character and the james woods character are friend enemies here Uh, that makes a lot more sense to me like they actually have a a history they actually know each other Uh, and bridges isn't a pi he's a desperate athlete you know broke and broken they spend a lot more time on the love affair in Mexico, uh, some of it in silly 80s montage, and the uh, the aforementioned twit, as you called him, the ex-partner here is actually a friend of Bridges and another desperate man, another broke and broken ex-athlete. Uh, I'll be brief here because this is actually hurting me quite a lot, but this is why I like this version better. Uh, so Jeff Bridges has a visible hunger here as the main character, and and like this was before he literally turned into the dude after the Big Lebowski <laughs> when the when the Coens just gave him permission to just be himself for the rest of time. <laughs> but like if you remember back in the day, I mean he was like lean, like wiry, he had like a restless and coiled energy that seemed like it wanted to just explode out of him at any moment. And he also doesn't play this guy as the smartest, coolest person in the world. He's a guy who's desperately trying not to be a sap. You know, I mean, he is, he's a sucker. Uh, you know, he's not, he's not dumb, but he, he's kind of a, kind of a doof. Uh, I mean, and, you know, James Woods is doing his James Woods thing that he just, you know, can do anytime he wants to. Uh, Richard Widmark is essentially the John Huston character from Chinatown, uh, and Rachel Ward. Well, the big problem she she she's still kind of like a nothing character in this movie. So to sum up, against all odds, as quickly as possible, there are things that I truly love about this movie. I like seeing James Woods and Jeff Bridges street race through a random <laughs> California highway. Like, I like them being friends and enemies at the same time. Like, I like this dynamic. I like James Woods playing volleyball. 
I like this L.A. sensibility. Like, it's a bright noir. I like the location shooting in Mexico. I like how Jeff Bridges and Rachel Ward lizard tongue kiss. Uh, I... I, I, In the middle of an Aztec temple? (laughs) Well, yeah. And, like, yes, exactly. Like, for no reason whatsoever. And it's just, like I said, like, it's... Not a good movie. It it is in fact a bad movie and rightly forgotten. But <laughs> it's it's fun. It's fun, and I'm just not getting fun from Out of the Past. This is, as you said, Chris. Like everybody involved in this is good. Kirk Douglas, Jane Greer, Nicholas Musaraka, Jacques Tournier. I mean. Like they created a terrific template of film noir, uh, you know, as you said, a cornerstone, a solid foundation. But that's what it is—is is a foundation. There's a whole building above that that is much better to look at than the cornerstones. So the truth is, is that I find it more fun to watch Against All Odds than to watch Out of the Past. And that's a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> it is. And I hadn't even planned on watching Against All Odds. But when Will and I divided up the labor research for this episode, Will was going to take the remake and watch it so that we could say a little something on it at the end just to be thorough. And uh, then I got a text from Will saying that he liked the remake more. And so then, of course, I had to watch it to try and understand. And... Well, let's just say I don't agree with Will's position. It just, <laughs> the remake is one of those fun-in-the-sun, steamy, sexy movies from the 80s. And I don't have a lot to say about it, except that I don't understand the initial plot setup. You know, why does James Woods, this bookie nightclub owner, why would he hire an ex-football player to find his missing girlfriend? I get that they're friends and that he owes him... Uh, But why would you hire a football player to do a private detective's job? And then when Jeff Bridges disappears, his response is to send a football coach after him, played by Mongo from Blazing Saddles, no less, uh, Alex Karras. And he did a good job, but I still don't understand why you would send these football guys to do this job. They're not trained investigators in any way, shape or form. It doesn't pass the common sense test. And not much about the remake does. And the Rachel Ward version of Kathy Moffat is, spoiler alert, she's not even a femme fatale. She doesn't do much of anything, which I guess maybe they were trying to go for with a twist within a twist. Catch the audience off guard because they're expecting her to be a femme fatale. But it didn't do it for me. And that said, we all like different things. Uh, Will, I don't understand your stance here fully, but I respect it. And you're entitled to your own opinion. Oh, that's the worst thing you can ever say to somebody. No, it's not. That's. <laughs> I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm trying no, no, to say that's not that what I. That's not what I meant. I, that's not what I, I meant. I get it, but I don't get it. No. Um, yeah, we're going to be working through this issue for the rest of our lives. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do some random facts. <laughs> All right. Uh, Random fact one. This is from the Lee Server book. 
Out of the past almost didn't happen with our favorite leading man because Mitchum flew out to location in his plane and it crashed on the runway and he almost died. The plane's brakes failed and it ran through the runway, crashed through a fence, and tipped over an outhouse before it finally stopped. Mitchum escaped unscathed, but the production people didn't know that and they heard about the crash and nobody could find Mitchum afterwards. He had gotten out of the plane, dusted himself off, and hitchhiked to the restaurant where they were all supposed to meet. Paul Valentine, who played Joe Stephanos, said to Lee Server, quote, He walked in on us. Everybody looked up, and the first words out of his mouth were, Anybody got any gauge? <laughs> yeah, he probably just napped through the whole thing. I mean, the man knows how to relax. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. I had never heard the word gauge before, uh, slang for marijuana. And uh, this book has a lot of new fun words in it, like pakalolo. That's Hawaiian for weed. I'd never heard that one before either. So uh, we'll let that be random fact number two. Uh, random fact number three. Here's another one from the Lee Server book. Paul Valentine told a story about how they were filming out of the past uh, for their location shooting out in the middle of nowhere. And there really wasn't much to do to occupy themselves. So they drank. And Mitchum one night just went off on a drunken rampage, came roaring into Virginia Houston's cabin where a bunch of the cast were hanging out. And Mitchum was bare-chested, comes in there and punches through the wooden door of the cabin, then put his fist through the wall. And uh, to corroborate this, Server actually found a memo dictating expenses that the movie had, quote, for damages caused by Robert Mitchum to Slick's Cabins, Bridgeport, cost $135, end quote. Those are the salacious and well-researched tidbits that you get with this book. And I don't want to end on a note that makes Mitchum seem like some sort of uh, drunk, but uh, he, he did drink a lot, but he always got the job done. He put on an air of not caring, but deep down, he did just like so many of the characters that he played. And I'll leave you with this story of director Howard Hawks, who worked with Mitchum on El Dorado, a really entertaining Western with the Duke. Hawks said to Mitchum, quote, You know, you're the biggest fraud I've ever met in my life. You pretend you don't care a damn thing, and you're the hardest working so-and-so I've ever known. End quote. And then supposedly Mitchum said, quote, Don't tell anybody. End quote. He cared. And so we care. And if you're a fan of Mitchum, do yourself a favor and check out Lee Server's book called Robert Mitchum, Baby, I Don't Care. It's one of the best biographies I've ever read. I laughed out loud so often while reading this and really got to see all the fascinating facets of the man called Mitchum. Yeah, I'm going to have to get that book from you, even though, of course, I've already heard all of the stories over the breakfast table. Uh, <laughs> uh, so random fact number five. Uh, Robert Mitchum and Jane Greer reunited for a short spoof film that played when Mitchum hosted Saturday Night Live in 1987. Uh, it was directed by Trina Mitchum, Robert Mitchum's daughter, and I wish we could tell you more about it, but we cannot find it. Scour the internet uh, to no avail. NBC recently put all their SNL episodes on their streaming site, but they aren't complete episodes. And the episode Mitchum hosted only has his opening monologue and not any of the sketches he was in. Which, I don't know, that's not just annoying, it's a crime. Eh. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really too bad because he was in uh, another sketch about a private detective who keeps narrating his life out loud. And it seemed like a funny one. 
and very much like to see it. So, listeners, if anyone has a line on somewhere we could find this episode of SNL, uh, well, let us know. And uh, I am, of course, at will at crimeisuppodcast.com. And that's it for this episode of the Crime Is Up podcast. Hope you enjoyed our spirited debate. (laughs) Next episode, Will and I are actually in agreement. We didn't kill our wives. It was that one-armed man. Yes, listeners, we're talking about Harrison Ford proving his innocence to Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive. And we'll be going through all the different iterations of The Fugitive, from its beginnings as a serial for the Saturday Evening Post by author David Goodis, to the first time it was adapted into a Hollywood vehicle for power couple Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Yes, we'll be talking about Dark Passage as well. And why stop there? Uh, we're also going to be giving you the, some business on the popular series from the 60s, ran for four seasons, uh, starring David Jansen and Barry Morse, the Fugitive TV series. And then we'll round it out with a bit about the uh, ill-fated 2000 remake series, starring Tim Daly and McKelty Williamson. That's my favorite, uh, that's my favorite newspaper, actually. Uh, the Tim Daly. <laughs> Gives me all my tin news, you know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is the joke you want to end on. All right. Been, I've been beyond offensive in this episode in many different ways. Uh, well, this week's episode was produced by Chris, and he and I wrote it. Our movie Italian art of Robert Mitchum lighting up a cig in his trench coat and fedora was done by Robert Anthony, of course. And you can see him, as always, on our Instagram at CrimeIsUp or our website, CrimeIsUpPodcast.com. This one has it all, listeners, so check it out. Uh, Robert's got that wayward, sideways glance of Mitchum's just right. And he's captured all the trappings that help make this role an immortal one. That trench coat, the tilted fedora, cigarette dangling carelessly from his lips. When you look at it, you could just about hear Mitchum's baritone voice saying, Baby, I don't care. You can find all of Robert's work on Etsy and Instagram at Robert Anthony Sketchworks. That's Sketchworks with an X, not a KS. Our theme song was done by Stephen Sinisi. Alicia Miller is our graphic designer, and our main cover art was done by Robert E. McGinnis. So, tune in next month for our talk about The Fugitive and Dark Passage. Yeah, it should be fun. Goodis is my favorite, so I'm looking forward to it. Ben, who doesn't love Harrison Ford? I don't think Greedo does. But, uh... <laughs>